on. Okay, Daima, today I want to do something quite interesting. I want to look at a few different schools of Indian philosophy, the ones that we don't really talk about in this space and the ones that typically get underrepresented. So I'm so glad that you could all join me today for this very auspicious Guru Purnima because I thought what could be a better occasion than this to have the kind of discussion that I intend to have with one of you, with all, with one and all of you today. So you see, there are many, like to say that the Indian spiritual heritage is vast is a bit of an understatement. It's vast. It's oceanic. It's unfathomably varied. And every sort of idea and attitude and disposition and approach can be found within the vast corpus of Indian spiritual literature. And there are so many guru paramparas, meaning there are so many traditions and lineages that are um ancient and very, very powerful, and even some new lineages that are incredibly powerful. So India, this plethora of sampradayas, meaning this, this vast array of different schools and different attitudes, I thought maybe today we could sample a little bit of some of the different spiritual flavors that we find across the board. So kind of my intention, to what degree it's possible, only Ma knows, is to place before you um, a few different dishes like in one of those South Indian Thali meals, you know, and it's going to be quite varied, a lot of different spiritual attitudes, but hopefully they all go with one another. Sometimes you don't think that they do. If you look at the Indian Thali meal, you'll be like, why, why is there a sweet thing? And then there's that, that spicy thing. And then there's like the salty thing and there's a sour thing. And then somehow when you mix it all in with the rice, it just works. So that's kind of the idea. I want to not, not give you a kitchery of things, but discrete diff dishes and you can mix and match the way you want. Okay, so we're going to be very clear about each individual school. We're not just going to like mix it all up into one big kitchery. You know, if you know what that dish is, it's like a big mix of things. No, we're going to be very clear and very concise to what degree I can be concise, even that only Manos. But uh, to what extent it's possible, we're going to be quite concise and quite clear and delineate each school from each other school and then place them before you. And then you will enjoy the meal as befits your temperament and your predisposition. So one of the joys of studying different schools of Indian philosophy is you might find something that resonates with you more than the schools of philosophy that we typically represent in this space. So as you know, in this community, um, our leaning tends to be more towards non-duality and all of its variants, particularly in the Kaula Trika or or I would say the the krama, or maybe you could even call it paramadvaya. Popularly, it's called uh, Kashmir Shaivism. So that's kind of our our main interest. But most of our lectures, if you look through the discography, are not really about Kaulatrika or Tantra. It's mostly like a tantricized Vedanta along the lines of Shankara Kevala Advaita. As you know, our like home base here is non-duality. Either Shankara's non-duality, Kevala Advaita, which is vastly popular in India all over. It's a pan-Indian kind of monastic movement. It's very popular and a very beautiful and elegant philosophy. And also, of course, my home base, my tradition, Kaula Trika Tantra. And the lineage that we belong to, Sri Ramakrishna's Parampara, there you get this wonderful ability to enjoy all the different spiritual dispositions and not be confined to any which one. There, the central claim is given God's infinitude, there are infinite ways to reach her, infinite ways to describe her, and also infinite ways to enjoy communion with her. So it's like walking into Baskin Robbins 31, you could eat one or two flavors. And typically, I've only served you one or two flavors, chocolate and mint chocolate chip, right? <laughs> But you could also eat a bunch of other flavors. And today I'd like to place before you, I don't know, ramen raisin or or pistachio. You know, the cool fee is typically pistachio or what have you. I'd like to introduce you to a few new flavors. And mainly the flavors of Ramanujas, Vishishtadvaita, probably Nimbarka's Dvaita Dvaita. And maybe if we can get away with it, a little bit of Madhavacharya. Of course, what I want to do mainly is place before you these schools and compare them 
to Kaulatrika Tantra, that is Kashmir Shaivism. I mean, Kaulatrika is much broader than, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't mean to be overly a- academic with you. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to compare them with the non-duality of Lord Shiva or Shakta Advaita. And of course, we're going to compare them with, with, with Sri Ramakrishna and his uh, Parampara. Today's Guru Purima. So not only are we going to explore the theories, which are in themselves sophisticated and nuanced and beautiful and inspiring, but more than that, I'd like to investigate the lives of the great masters who expounded these theories. Because these theories aren't just intellectual gymnastics. They're coming from a place of real inspiration. These masters have touched something divine deep within themselves and they've seen it scintillating all about them and in light of that rapturous vision of the divine they are now composing hymns composing commentaries teaching their disciples establishing their lineages etc so in each of these philosophies not only we're going to study them theoretically but we ought to study them also in terms of practice what do they mean for us as a spiritual practitioner and most importantly what did they mean for the people who founded them what were their lives like and i want to maybe today in honor of guru purnima tell you the life story of ramanuja in brief and then tell you a little bit maybe about the life story of Nimbarka. And then maybe a little bit about Madhava, you know, definitely about Shankara. And maybe a little bit about Abhinavagupta. I don't think there's going to be the space for all of these, but we'll see what we can get to in the time that we have. I don't actually know what the time is that we have, but I'm just saying that so you don't get scared. Don't worry, we won't go too long today. I just want to make sure that we cover the main things. So let's dive right into it. A lot of different um, things. And yes, I, I agree, Kili. I'm also ecstatically excited. And the best way to... Um, interact with the material today is to just relax and you can take notes if you want. There are going to be some technical phrases in Sanskrit, but it's not important that you memorize those words or their, or their, um, m- phrase like, that technical word is not important. It's just important that you use them as a sort of mnemonic device to point you to the concepts that they represent. So the most important thing is that you digest to whatever degree it's possible. Just that the, the, the concept, like the, the idea, the approach. Um, Gare, there's going to be a Q&A coming up, dear. So just give me a moment. We'll finish the lecture and we'll do the Q&A in the end, okay? But if you have any questions, put them in the chat just so that um, I can keep up the flow of the lecture. If they're in the chat, though, I'll see if I can interweave them into the lecture as I go. So yes, um, we're going to do one school of philosophy at a time, starting with Charvaka. And at the end of each school of philosophy, maybe not Charvaka, but let's see, we'll, we'll find some places in between this, this journey for some Q&A, okay? But for now, just put them in the chat if you can. All right, so are we ready? Are we ready to go on our tour, our journey? It's Guru Purnima. So each of these schools is in and of themselves a sampradaya, a school. But that sampradaya, that school of philosophy, features within it many different Guru Paramparas, many different lineages. And each of them are a tradition unto themselves. As Swami Vivekananda said, and I paraphrase, his goal is not to unify the world under one sect, but rather to see the sects of the world diversify. As many people, so there should be as many sects, different ways to approach God, experience God, enjoy God, describe God, etc. So these are broad overarching categories. And I only mean to be quite um, overarching, to say the least, in my treatment of each of these schools. So forgive me for not going into too many details. So let's just get started with Charvaka. I think the point of departure for our journey today is Charvaka. Charvaka is what we would today call maybe reductionist materialism, but perhaps the more accurate phrase is um, hedonistic materialism. So this is what we today associate with not just agnosticism, but like an outright atheism. The claim that there cannot be any reality other than this matter and energy that presents itself to us from moment to moment. So this world, this universe is the sum total of all that exists. And the notion that there are transcendent realities like God or angels or even ghosts or what have you has no place in this philosophy of staunch materialist reductionism. Okay, so this is kind of a popular view because it's a view that most of us find ourselves um maybe involuntarily acceding to, 
as a part and parcel of being in today's like scientific materialist reductionist culture. So this is the view that most institutions of learning are just operating under the assumption of. It's what most people are speaking from. So whether it's consciously articulated or not, most of us are charvakas to one degree or another, at least as a starting point. We most of us in today's day and age come to this philosophy with like a background of charvaka. So what does charvaka ultimately say? Well, the philosophy is pretty nuanced actually. There's a lot of different things. They have like all these different tatwas and what have you. But to put it simply, only matter and energy ultimately exist. The soul does not reincarnate. Death is indeed final. There is no God or higher reality to aspire towards. And therefore, ethically speaking, the goal of life is to live in a way that's like virtuous, but above all, fulfilling from the point of view of sense pleasure. So you want to live a world that's fun. Uh, sorry, live a life in this world that's fun. Fun in the sense that you have lots of nice things to look at, lots of good things to hear, lots of nice things to smell, lots of good things to eat, lots of uh, nice textures to touch. You want to have lots of sex and have lots of money and have lots of power. Just basically, you want to live a worldly life because after all, what is there other than that in this world? Than that, you know, so that, that's the claim of the Charvaka. So this claim in scientific materialism is a little more sophisticated. It's the claim that matter and energy is what the universe ultimately can be reduced to. So here, if we investigate the implication of this, matter and energy comes first, consciousness comes second. So this experience that you're having, this first person experience of sitting here, listening to this lecture, interacting with these ideas, all of this, according to Charvaka, or in today's version, scientific materialism, is like this, um, what do you say, uh, emergent property. It's an epiphenomenon. It, it, it just somehow appears from some kind of chemical electrical activity. So matter comes together in a particular combination that results in this experience of consciousness. That's the claim. So consciousness, this experience of being here, is merely a byproduct of matter. If you didn't have your brain, you wouldn't be conscious. Okay, that's that's a more subtle version of Charvaka. Okay, so what's the ultimate building block of reality? Well, you could say um, atoms, or you could go deeper. You could say strings or quarks or or what have you. But ultimately, it's matter. It's stuff. It's physical matter. And that matter is ultimately inert. In its like most reduced form, that matter itself is not conscious. It's inert. It's insentient. Okay, It's what in Sanskrit we would call jada. Jada means inert insentient. So all of this universe is just this insentient mass of matter that is somehow moving in like this cyclical way. There are certain laws like gravity and electromagnetism and thermodynamics, etc. But for the most part, it's just a machine. It's a machine functioning along impersonal lines. And it's absolutely impersonal. It has no purpose whatsoever. No one knows really whence it came. No one really knows whence it's going. It might not even have a teleology, meaning a why. And you're just apparently here as some kind of epiphenomenon of cells or particles interacting, right? So that's the view of Charvaka. So I'd like to say there are about four problems with this view, four philosophical issues, and I'd like to highlight them one by one. Hello, Chris. Um, okay, so that's the thing, Ankit, because uh, this is a good question, actually. Many Indian schools of philosophy who are theistic, right? They um, To say Indian is maybe a little bit of a South Asian. Even the Buddhist in Tibet, um, and in Sri Lanka, and even in Burma, like they also sometimes take the time to respond to the Charvaka, meaning they all took, most of them took the Charvaka seriously. Yes, Dylan, this uh, mother willing will be uploaded. So most of them did take Charvaka seriously. They considered it a real school of Indian philosophy. And you know what? I think this speaks to the wonderful, tolerant, and not even tolerant, but celebratory nature of Sanatana Dharma. The ability to say, we might not agree with you, but we respect that you have something to say, 
and we want to hear it. So Charvakas were allowed to like preach their doctrine of, of, of wanton hedonism and materialism in temples in front of a group of theistic practitioners, you know, people who believe in God, people who believe in the soul, people who believe in reincarnation. These Charvaka philosophers were given an audience, were given platforms to, to spread their ideas. And I think that shows that Indian spiritual culture of old was very receptive to new ideas. I mean, think about the Buddha, who of course wasn't a Charvaka, but he certainly wasn't a theist. And he too was invited to come and speak at temples and debate with pundits, etc. So Charvaka is considered a serious and real school of philosophy because they make some pretty serious claims like matter being the only thing that can exist. How do you justify that? Well, it's because it's all I can see, right? Why should I posit the existence of realities that are not immediately available to me as a matter of sense perception? The thing about matter, like tables and chairs and people, the thing about this world is that I can see it. In fact, for most of us, this is the realest real thing there is, the physical world. And I myself am a part of this physical world. And so I might as well act as if the world is real. And given that there's no other reality like God or soul aside from from the world, the best I can hope for in this world is fun, is pleasure, what we call hedonism. And hedonism doesn't have to be this debauch thing. It doesn't have to mean, I mean, Charvaka was very popular, I think, amongst kings, royals, who of course wanted to have a kind of debauched life, you know, so they wanted to get rid of like Vedic injunctions and, you know, the kind of the, the Vedic admonition of enjoy, but enjoy responsibly. You know, like the alcohol ads, drink, but drink responsibly. Like the Vedas are like that. They tell you, go to heavens, enjoy your heavens, um, enjoy life, enjoy your money, enjoy your pleasure, enjoy your prodigy. However, um, you can enjoy these things, but you must enjoy with restraint. You must learn to gradually mitigate your sense attraction to the world and all of that stuff. Like the Vedas lets you enjoy. It invites a kind of life-affirming, gregarious style of living. But... Um, it does have injunctions and rules and duties and responsibilities. Like you have to do your Vedic yagnas to fulfill your responsibility to the gods. You have to study the Vedas to fulfill your responsibility to the rishis. You have to study, uh, so you have to offer um, uh, pinda or a sort of ceremony for your ancestor, ancestors, you know. Then you have to uh, help people. So you have to do something valuable and constructive to help society around you, you have to feed the poor, give in charity, etc. You have to help holy men, sadhus, etc. Holy men, women, and people. And then also, you have to help animals. So you have to have enough left over to feed some some ants with some sugar and to feed the birds. So these five duties, duties of the gods, duties of the ancestors, uh, duties of the rishis who are, you know, disembodied at this point, d duties to fellow man, duties to fellow animals. Like the Charvaka will re reject the first three. What gods? Um, what rishis? You know, what the rishis, just, were, just because they wrote these books, we're supposed to take them seriously. Why should I read the books that they wrote, especially since they talk about super sensuous realities, which I myself have no access to. And then also, why should I um, do rituals for my ancestors, these tedious rituals that often involve me making a pilgrimage to this place in northern India called Gaia, where you typically do these ancestral worships. So like, why should I have to travel here and do this worship and have this home of fire or pay this priest? And it all seems like a bunch of hogwash to me, right? It all seems like state control or social manipulation to take my money. Notice that this attitude is incredibly um, common today. The feeling of mistrust that we have for religious institutions. And a lot of that mistrust is quite founded. You know, it's quite valid given the abuses that we've seen in institutionalized religion. So the Charvakas, they weren't reacting to like, you know, the 30 years Reformation War and the horrible violence that ensued when the Christians Protestants and Catholics broke up like that. They weren't, they weren't reacting to that level of religious trauma, but they were sort of uncomfortable with all these duties, responsibilities, etc. especially since all of it is premised upon Vedic authority, the authority of 
long ago scriptures and the existence of super sensuous realities that I can't experience. Exactly, Mario. They do reject karma and rebirth because how do I know that I'm going to reincarnate? I mean, and as such, why should I be worried about karma as if in the future I'll have to pay for what I do now? I mean, there's no proof of that, says the Charvaka. Don't worry, we'll offer some proofs in a bit. But they'll say, like, this, this is all... um. All that and and by the way, Hrithik is asking, what if you gave them you could you could give them psychedelics? Why not? They'll just they'll dismiss that experience as oh, it's just some chemical change in the brain. It surely doesn't show me anything real about the world. It just makes things a little funny, you know. But it doesn't tell me anything about the world. So yeah, so I think that's I think Mario has summarized it quite beautifully, and this is our modern conception of the hedonistic, materialistic, reductionist worldview as well. It's self. It's about self interest, like Adam Smith's capitalism. You know, it's individual freedom, self interest, um, and you just enjoy your life to the best of your ability, insofar as you can do that to some extent without harming others. It's okay. Okay. So anyway, that's Charvaka. Now here are four philosophical problems with it. The first, I think, the biggest, most glaring problem of Charvaka and the reason why Charvakas sooner or later will default to some tradition, probably to Buddhism first, because I mean, it's non-theistic and quite welcoming. The first problem is that hedonism, as you know, is ultimately unfulfilling. So you do get to a point where all the pleasures of the world become quite nauseating and absolutely empty for you. So this typically happens when you've acquired a lot of wealth. So it can keep you busy for some time acquiring that wealth. And of course, you can experiment with different ways to achieve pleasure, different permutations of pleasure. If I take this substance with that substance, or if I have an orgy in the airplane as opposed to in the hotel room, you know, you could you could play with the variables as much as you want. But eventually you'll get to the point where you realize everything is so sugarless, so tasteless. It's all gone to the point where um, it's almost nauseating, actually revolting. So it reminds me of Herman Hesse's Siddhartha when the young protagonist, Siddhartha, plunges headfirst into the vanities of the world and he's looking at his face in the mirror one day and he realizes how tired and absolutely uh, wasted he's become and, and how absolutely, um, let's say, exhausted all of that seemed to make him, You know how exhausted he was. So in the Katta Upanishad, there's a beautiful statement where Nachiketa, when offered all the pleasures of the world, rejects them and says, these things will only bring pleasure for one or two days. Ultimately, they wear out the senses. There's only so many things that you can enjoy through the senses until all of that becomes nauseous. The first problem, the main problem of Charvaka, it doesn't need to be reiterated because we talk about it here a lot, is the problem of suffering. This was the first insight the Buddha had that led him down a, a road that would later end with him becoming the Buddha and the founder of a great school of, of Indian philosophy, which of course flourished as many different schools and of, of, of diverse spiritual attitudes. So the Buddha, he noticed that everything is fraught with suffering. If you get something that you like, it's only suffering imminent. It's imminent suffering because whatever you get that you love, you can lose. And, and losing it will bring suffering. Or you can change. And that thing that maybe brought you pleasure yesterday no longer brings you pleasure today. Or you don't get what you want. And then you struggle and suffer. And at the very least, you're going to get old, you're going to get sick, and you're going to die. And all of these are real problems. And even if you're not actually afraid of death, death right now, you're afraid of maybe things ending because they're reminiscent of, of death. Yeah, you and, and that I think also like... Maybe to a certain sensitive person, Roxanne is asking, what about connecting with the awe of nature? That's good. If a person is really like pleasure seeking, chances are they won't give themselves the time to do that. So they'll be they'll be hustling and bustling, trying to establish themselves in the world. So they won't they literally won't have time to smell the roses. 
Never mind proverbially. You know, they'll be hustling and bustling, making money, building security. And the thing about old age sickness and death is unless you find some way to deal with those anxieties, they'll always be there in the back of the mind, uh, polluting each moment with a kind of background dread and fear. So old age doesn't just mean the fear of like gray hair or getting old, but it's it's the fear that uh, uh, my my projects, I'll never see them tr- through or I might, I might not have energy to follow the, follow through with my project it's actually the fear of change the fear of changes in the body being only the very surface fear but all changes are the fear of old age the fear of sickness and the fear of death is the fear of end so as long as i feel like i am the sort of thing that can grow old that can get sick and that can die then i have a lot of things to be afraid of and as a result i can never really stop and smell the roses whether literal or proverbial i can never really enjoy nature because i'm probably thinking about the upcoming business trip or i'm probably probably thinking about all my family drama, or I'm probably thinking about what my relatives and friends think of me, or I'm probably more interested in the Instagram posts that I'm generating based on this awe-inspiring vista than the vista itself. Notice, this is the predicament that most of us find ourselves in, insofar as we don't have solutions to the problem of old age, sickness, and death. So hedonism, even in its most refined form, can be ultimately unfulfilling. Because it's true, there's a range of hedonistic activities, uh, ranging from like the most debauched, gross, tangible, sensual pleasures, to like the most refined cultural pleasures of like art experiences or nature experiences. And those are certainly closer to spiritual experiences. And that's why a lot of artists and naturalists become mystics. But you have to already have a certain level of sensitivity to those higher realities to sense even that there's some majesty in nature. But unless you have that sensitivity, if you really believe you're the kind of thing that can grow old, that can get sick, that can die, if you really believe that the purpose of your life is to like acquire wealth and, and pleasure, then chances are you won't be present enough to enjoy that beauty of nature. So I think that's I think that was a great point. So the first objection that we have to Charvaka, the first problem is that hedonism is ultimately unfulfilling. So this is an axiological problem. As you know, in philosophy, there are different kinds of philosophy. There's axiology, which is a study of ethics, the study of beauty, the study of value, the study of meaning. So of course, the first assault on the Charvaka is an axiological one. An ethical one, if your purpose in life is to pursue hedonistic self-pleasure, then you can only do that virtuously up to a point. Because notice, all morality, all virtue requires some level of self-sacrifice. And all self-sacrifice requires some grander, higher ideal than oneself. Now, no ideal given to us by the world can ever be grand enough, actually, for that level of self-sacrifice. Because even if it's like environmentalism, or even if it's some political project that seems virtuous at first, chances are, if I still feel like a self, an individual, I might become selfish about that thing. That's why we often see environmental groups fighting amongst one another. Some feel like they're more right and more just than the other. There's a lot of otherization happening, even in so-called noble causes. Political projects that start off with noble intentions very quickly dissolve into, devolve rather, into fanatical movements that can sometimes become outright terrorism, you know? So even things with the best of intentions, unless you rid yourself of this egotism, this sense of like, fraught, limited individuality, chances are even the most noblest pursuit will turn out sour in the end, after all. So axiologically, meaning in terms of ethics, chances are you're probably going to be breaking people's hearts or manipulating or telling lies on a microcosmic level, or you're probably going to be enacting some huge project on a macrocosmic level, like colonization, that brings a lot of pain and suffering, even though the intentions might have at first been good. See, the problem with this is the same problem that today as a culture we find with consumerism and capitalism, etc. It's the pursuit of hedonistic self-interest, which no matter what, will never be ultimately virtuous, given that virtue always requires self-sacrifice, and given that self-sacrifice requires some deeper notion of self that sublates or subjugates this lower fraught ego self.
you see. So that's the problem with Charvaka from an ethical point of view. It can never ultimately be ethical. Here's also the problem from an axiological, like, value point of view. You can never really enjoy the, the sunset, okay? That's the first problem with Charvaka. But let's become a little more nuanced. The second problem, see, axiology is always the most wishy-washy type of philosophy because it's value and ethics and meaning and beauty. It's the stuff that to me means the most, but it's the hardest thing to be clear and concise and persuasive about, actually, I think sometimes. So instead, we can also offer an epistemological challenge to Charvaka, and it's as follows. There's no real refutation from the Charvaka to the idealist claim that you can never access the world directly. So the Charvaka, remember, as I said earlier, believes that the world exists because they're seeing it. But can they be sure that what they're seeing is the world? After all, do we have any access to the world outside of our thoughts about it? When I look at something, am I looking at it directly or am I not just looking at a mental representation of it in the mind? It's more likely the latter than the former. So the idealist says, just because something looks real doesn't mean it's really there. Just because there seems to be a world beyond your senses doesn't mean that there's actually a world beyond your senses. Just like in the dream, there appeared to be a real world, right? And then the moment you woke up from the dream, you realized it was quote unquote all in your head. Who's to say that this too is not all in your head. So this is the idealist challenge to the materialist. Just because you're experiencing something, seeing something, doesn't mean it's actually there. It's like a very important challenge from Advaita Vedanta, which uses examples like the mirage. You know, it looks like water, but it's not really water. Descartes considers the stick that looks bent, but is not really bent in his critique of just like direct prima facie empirical, you know, knowledge. So that's the problem, right? All experience, you can't really claim it's a posteriori. You know, because it could just be an experience a priori, like inside of you, like prior to having any outside experience. So this is the first problem, epistemologically with Charvaka. Am I seeing a cup or only my mental representation of a cup? Is there such a thing as a cup beyond my mental representation? That's the first problem. The second problem is, if the Charvaka claims that matter and energy is ultimately real, well, you have to tell me what matter is, right? And this is where we come to the hard problem of matter, which a great philosopher named Strassen um, articulated. He said, you know, the funny thing about matter, and it's kind of a joke because there's something called the hard problem of consciousness, which was coined by David Chalmers and Swami Saraparindaji loves to talk about it. And he's quite, I think he's the authority on this kind of epistemological stuff regarding consciousness. But the hard problem of matter is when Strassen said, you know, hey, never mind the hard problem of consciousness. We have an even harder problem, which is the hard problem of matter. That is to say, the more I look for matter, the more it vanishes before my very eyes. What is this stuff? What is this matter? If I look at it, it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It looks like I'm, I'm faced with what is called an infinite regress or an Indian philosophy, anavasta. It's disappearing, literally disappearing before my very eyes. What was once a table became atoms. What were, what were once atoms became subatomic particles like neutrons, protons, um, electrons. What were electrons orbiting clearly defined lines now became probability clouds. And what were previously neutrons and electrons are now further subdivided into quarks and what have you, you know? So the problem with matter is that nobody really knows what it is. And the closer you look at it, the less you really understand what it is. You know, and you, you kind of know what it does. You can see its effects, but you can't really say anything about it. And as scientists, especially in the quantum field, quantum mechanics probe, and I'm by no means an expert, but as they probe deeper and deeper into these things, they have to postulate very wild notions like dark matter and dark energy, just so that the math will check out. I was watching a funny TikTok and the person was like, he was like, he was designing a submarine. That was the joke, right? Maybe a bit too soon. And then he was like, like this, this hull is made of aluminum. You mean aluminum? No, no, no aluminium. It's stronger. It was so funny. And then he said, uh, don't worry, don't worry. The math, it check out. See, see, Pre you see the pressure? 
math, it checked out. He just wrote the word math and he checked out there. So anyway, so to make the math check out, um, to make the math check out, you need to postulate things that sound even wilder than God. You know, so as one, one philosopher made a joke, he said, I think Arindam Chakravarti made the joke. He said, as long as you're quantum mechanics, person, you can postulate the wildest, most bizarre theory of creation and people will think you're smart. But if you're a philosopher or a spiritual teacher, you could postulate the most grounded, most reasonable thing and people will think it's baloney because you use the word God. But you can use the word dark matter and dark energy and you can use all sorts of like abstract words as long as it comes to quantum mechanics. So notice, the problem with Charvaka is it rejects empiricism and then it quickly devolves into its own form of mythology and storytelling premised upon what they consider to be a tenuous empiricism. Okay, so I'm not, here's, this is not an attack on the scientific method. That method we should use even in spiritual life. It's an attack on the philosophy that takes for granted the existence of matter and energy as the basic building blocks of reality. Such a world does not exist or it cannot be shown to exist. Okay, this is all, um, already quite troubling, but now consider the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, St. Anthony, that joke. What is mind? No matter. What is matter? Never mind. What does matter matter anyway? <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> like how Emily's saying, that's why I can never find my keys. The more I look for matter, the more it disappears before my very eyes. That's good. <laughs> so, so far, so good, right? Um, yeah, Charvaka absolutely rejects the existence of Ishvara or any kind of thing like that. So that's the thing. This is the reality of all in quote unquote information that we can get from the external world. And they're all it's all subject to doubt. So so far so good. Is everyone enjoying this? It's pretty technical philosophy, and I hope you're I hope you're digging it. We're, we're getting we're gonna get into some theistic philosophy in a little bit. Okay. So now the hard problem of consciousness. So David Chalmers says, um, and he articulates this phrase really beautiful. Hard problem beautifully. Hard problem of consciousness. The mind is clearly associated to the brain. Okay, so clearly if I do something to the physical organ called the brain, that will change my experience or that will change the quality, or not, not say the quality, but like the content of my experience. It might even change my personality. So like that famous study, Finnis Gage, right? He blew out a part of his brain and that radically altered the kind of person that he was. So we know, nobody can deny the brain has close correlation with behavior, with personality, with thoughts and with emotions. But that doesn't mean the brain is associated to consciousness. So here we have to be very clear about our definition of consciousness. Friends, this is to me a very deep spiritual teaching. What is consciousness? I mean, never mind the ancient Indian definitions like Anidam Chaitanyam of Padma Pada or anything like that. Just right now, what is it to be a conscious being? If not, merely to know that you are. Meaning to know that you're here, to have this sense of I'm here now, having this felt presence. And not only that, to have this like qualia. Qualia is a word that philosophers use to mean the way it feels like to be you. So as Emily said beautifully in the, in the yoga class prior to this, what does it feel like to be you right now? That's consciousness. Like it's not about what you're experiencing, it's that you're experiencing. So Emily gave the example earlier of the river from uh, Mr. Keating, right? There are boats and there are rocks and there are twigs floating down the river, meaning there are thoughts, there are emotions. In other words, there's content in consciousness. But that content can change. Consciousness itself remains the same, just like the river upon which all of those things are flowing, you see. So this river, this, this feeling that you are, wholly apart from what you are aware of, that's consciousness, that's qualia. So how is it that the brain can produce that? In other words, how is it that a few particles of matter interacting with one another can create this very simple thing 
And and by the way, and, and Swami Sarpiranda, I think, had a beautiful argument with regards to AI the other day. Emily attended the talk. And there he was arguing from the point of view of AI, like these developers can code for everything, right? The most complex features of human intelligence, like writing poetry, making art, um, debating, playing games like Go and chess. They can code for all of that, but they cannot code for consciousness. It, no AI developer will claim that they have even, you know, the, an inkling of an idea how to quote unquote code for consciousness. Why? Because consciousness cannot emerge from matter. There's no relationship between matter and consciousness in a causal sense. Matter cannot cause consciousness. And I think that's a serious attack on the materialist reductionist view that the brain produces this, you know, emergent epiphenomenon called consciousness. So that's what's called the hard problem. You put this, put these two together. You've got the hard problem of matter and you've got the hard problem of consciousness. Okay. Now, if you really study the world and you ask for three words to describe the world, you'll get from the most cutting edge quantum mechanics, relativity. <laughs> nothing is absolute. Everything here in the universe is relative. Two, uncertainty. Heisenberg will tell you nothing is certain. Particles and waves, who knows what they really are. And finally, Godel will tell you it's incomplete. You know, so this material I, I've, I've learned from Swami Sarvapanandaji, he made a beautiful point here. He, and whenever it comes to materialism and Advaita Vedanta's response to materialism, of course, Swami Sarvapanandaji's thing is the voice par excellence for it. Among other things as well, of course. But here, I think he really he's really giving some devastating blows for our current materialistic reductionist paradigm. And here, we just have to point out that um, you can't say matter and energy are absolutely true because the cutting-edge quantum mechanics of today, um, not even today, but the early 20th century, have shown that it's relative. It's all about frames of reference, you know? And not only that, you can't say anything certainly about this universe. It's uncertain, as Heisenberg showed, and as we learned in the Copenhagen infer inference, you know? And, and of course, ultimately, all of it really comes down to math. When you look closely at the theoretical physics of today, you'll see that the claims about the universe at large are claims largely um, arrived at through mathematics. So mathematics better be secure, right? Mathematics better be a great a priori tool for examining the universe, except it's not, because Godel, in his 1930s paper, The Incompleteness Theorems, manages to show that mathematical axioms are inherently and internally self-contradictory. Basically pulls the carpet out from under us in terms of math. So if our, in, our entire idea of what this universe is is premised upon what BuzzFeed tells us the theoretical physicists are telling us, and if a theoretical, theoretical physicist in this game of broken telephone are telling the science journalist these things, it's only because they're getting it from their math. But what happens when that math is proved to be incomplete, to be structurally imbalanced? We're fucked. Right? So basically, everything you know about the world is probably false. Epistemologically speaking, Charvaka is absolutely floundering here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's lev let's uh, let's do a, a, another another response. So a third response, again from the point of view of epistemology. There's not enough data actually in Charvaka to make any real claim about reality. Do you know why? In Charvaka, in materialist reductionist philosophy, the only data that we use to make any claim about reality comes from waking state experiences only. Not from psychedelic experiences either. Like Hrithik proposed, like, why don't we just give everyone acid and then maybe the Charvakas will become spiritualists? Not necessarily. I know a lot of Charvaka-type individuals who've done a lot of acid and shrooms, etc., who don't seem to have a spiritual bone in their body, right? But there are also those who actually do come to spirituality, perhaps through psychedelic experience. So it's not really... And there are some people who come to spirituality through nature and through art, and others who don't. There are artists and naturalists who remain rampant hedonists. So obviously there's something more to just having an experience like 
psychedelics or having an experience like dreaming or having an experience like something spiritual. You know, there's something more to it. And this is what I would suggest. It's the predisposition to accept as real or as valuable any data that does not conform to the waking world state. Notice, we're very biased to our waking state experience. We think things are only real if I experience them when I'm awake. So notice that I dismiss all the data that I get from dreams. Most materialists will. They'll think dreams are just, and, and they'll also dismiss data that they get from perhaps psychedelic experiences. And should they be so fortunate as to have spiritual experiences, they'll probably dismiss that data too. So they're not using all the possible data to derive a holistic and all-inclusive philosophy. They're merely premising their philosophy based on one small subsection of the totality of your experience, namely the waking state. Do you see, isn't this a devastating attack? To say to the Charvaka, the problem here is that you just haven't considered all the variables, man. You haven't accounted for dream, for deep sleep. You haven't accounted for modes of consciousness a bit different from waking world experiences. With psychedelics, of course, being like the cheapest and easiest of them, but with exalted spiritual experiences being another one. And so India is full of, I mean, of old, since its earliest point in civilization, the Indus Saraswati Valley. Um, it's been full of mystical experiences and many mystics have had the linguistic ability to describe those mystical experiences. And not only that, they were able to bring their disciples to a point where their disciples were also able to achieve mystical experiences. So as far as Guru Purnima goes, one of the functions of the Guru is to convey their enlightenment to others. Guru doesn't stand there and say, I saw God, therefore believe me and that's it. The Guru says, I saw God um, and therefore you can too. Because anything anyone anywhere has done, anyone anywhere else at any other time can also do. I'll repeat that again. The Indian ethos or the Sanatana Dharma ethos, I won't limit it to just India because obviously it's far broader than that. It includes all over the world the same disposition. But um, the idea is this. Anyone anywhere having attained anything, that same attainment is available to anyone else, anywhere else, any other time. That's a pretty scientific claim. So the gurus of India, those who have achieved mystical states of rapture and have had visions and have had all sorts of different modes and flavors of consciousness, they not only express them in their writings and their teachings, but they also conveyed them so that other people could experience them too. So therefore, we have a lot more data than is available to the Charvaka to make religious and spiritual claims. So that's another, I think, epistemological problem I would have with the Charvaka is that they're just not using all the possible data available to them. And okay, my final problem with the Charvakas is the, the fourth objection is a metaphysical objection. So gang, we're going to go really deep because epistemology is pretty deep. Axiology, wonderful. But metaphysics, I mean, that metaphysics is about what's really real. Um, <laughs> so Gare is asking, does this end at 11 slash 8 p.m.? God willing, Gare. <laughs> God willing. Because I have a lot more I have to cover. And I hope you don't mind. Um, don't feel trapped. If you have to go, you have to go, okay? I'm just going to I'm gonna get through my material because um, I want to talk about Ramanuja. But one last thing I want to say about the Charvaka before we continue, and it's this. This is a metaphysical problem. How did this world come to be? So as we asked in previous lectures, why is there something rather than nothing? Where did this all come from? And you know, the Charvaka might say something like, today the Charvaka might say like, Big Bang. It, it, who, who knows? It's just here. There was some singularity um, and then this universe appeared. So essentially, you know what they're saying? It's creation ex nihilo. Like there was nothing and now there's something. But can nothing produce something? Can something come out of nothing? This is um, a huge metaphysical logical problem. Like how can nothing produce something? And you know, most people already feel like that's true. They're like, yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing can't produce something, obviously. Because why can't nothing produce something? Because it's nothing. 
<laughs> it's neither X or Y. So how can Z arise from X or Y when there's no X or Y? So it's not it's not a good explanation that not it's not very scientific, by the way. It's like spontaneous generation, you know. Oh, I, I the 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 maggots just appeared spontaneously in the meat. No, you have to find some kind of cause behind that effect. People aren't just getting sick. There's bacteria, you know. So the the whole scientific endeavor is to discover causes behind effects. Just because you can't find the cause, perhaps because it's too subtle, doesn't give you just ground to dismiss it. To say there's no cause whatsoever. Similarly, just because you haven't discovered the cause of the universe doesn't mean you get to posit that it's nothing. Because philosophically, nothing can't produce something. No. How can nothing produce? It's like saying the color red can produce the number two. This is a category error. The color red and the number two have nothing to do with one another and therefore can't be any in any kind of causal relationship with one another. You see? Right. So even if it's happening at the same time, there should be some kind of cause, some kind of explanation, you know? Um, so most materialists won't be able to provide one. And that's a huge problem, actually. It's a huge glaring gap in that school of philosophy. Now, today, by the way, in quantum mechanics, they do actually present something. It's called the quantum foam theory. So they know that there's huge philosophical problems with saying something came out of nothing. So the whole Big Bang thing has become a little bit old school. Now, the idea is that the Big Bang is actually emergent from this quantum flux or this quantum foam, a state of instability where particles are bubbling out from this supposed substance called quantum foam notice but again as long as it's you have the word quantum in front of it you're credible that's why you know you'll see in uh on tiktok or whatever there'll be people making these like wild off the wall claims but they want to use the word quantum because they think if they say quantum before they insert their really wild off the wall phrase then it'll be more legible or credible <laughs> right it's the quantum jumping through the hoops and paying me money on the instagram because i read your tarot cards system you know what i mean it's the quantum Give me your money because I'm talking to your ancestors. You, know I mean? you can't just say quantum in front of something. Anyway, but no, serious quantum mechanics, quantum trickery. <laughs> Gang, I love that. Quantum trickery. Yeah, today's American New Age, you can see, is so saturated with this quantum trickery, right? But but notice why that's the case. It's because the word quantum has like a lot of credibility in our culture, which is very uh, dependent upon like scientism or scientificationism. You know, it's, it's not science because no scientist would make claims like these. It's just like these scientific journalists or these like college bros who read a little Nietzsche from a secondhand source in a college dormitory and become all nihilistic and material, you know. So that's the problem. Now, I think that's enough said for Charvaka. So are we satisfied? I think, I think this to me has dismantled Charvaka completely. I feel like it has no legs left to stand on anymore. Right? That's what I feel. And hopefully, if you have refutations, you should, um, you should, you, you should, don't forget them. Because in the Q&A, hopefully today we can have a bit of debate. Debate is at the heart of the Guru Parampara. It's at the heart of Indian spiritual tradition, or Sanatana Dharma. So if you have any responses, just note them. But I want to move on to the next thing. I want to bring you now to God. You know, God is necessary now because you can see that any worldview without God is metaphysically fraught. It's epistemologically fraught because as you know, God, a lot of that in India is, and, and not, not to say India, I keep saying India, but I mean like the much vaster tradition of Sanatana Dharma. Um, and I would even include in that all different spiritual schools, right? Like Christians, the Christian mystics, the Sufis, all of them are experiencing something. So if you're saying something is real because you experienced it, then you can't discount the experience of mystics who have experienced God firsthand and are able to teach you how to do that also. So notice, epistemologically, Charvaka has no leg to stand on because it's, you know, dismissive of all these mystical experiences. 
Oh, by the way, we can prove reincarnation, but we don't need to do it now. It's not important, actually. It's not too valuable to me to do so. But in the Q&A, maybe we can. Anyways, the Travaka has no epistemological ground to stand upon, being, of course, myopic in its data, which is, as you, as you, as you heard, limited to just the waking state. It has no axiological ground to stand on because its value system, its meaning system, its ethical system doesn't really work. It doesn't actually give you human fulfillment. And finally, it's metaphysically fraught because it proposes creation ex nihilo. Right? So yes, every Reddit bro, all the nihilists who only half read Nietzsche, I'm coming for you. Everything you probably think is true is probably not because it's founded upon very lazy philosophy. Okay, now, what have I essentially done? I've given you a criteria, which hopefully you can use now to gauge the rest of what I'm about to tell you. I've told you, I just, I use Charvaka as a kind of example. It's, it's, it's like, it was a teaching tool, right? I, I was basically demonstrating a pose, a yoga pose. And now we're going to do the pose together. Basically, I was showing you by what standards a philosophy can be judged, axiological standards. Is this ethics a robust, just ethics? Does it provide value and meaning and fulfillment to a human life? Secondly, is there epistemological grounds for claiming this? Like, can I know that these claims are true? And thirdly, um, metaphysics. Is it a satisfying metaphysics? Does it actually account for something rather than nothing? And the degree to which a philosophy is successful is the degree, degree to which it um, deals with these three or, 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 or meets these three criteria. Uh, okay, so Janam is asking, what's the difference between um, epistemology and axiology? Epistemology is the philosophy of how we know what we know. And axiology is this umbrella term in which is included, under which is included ethics, aesthetics, you know, basically the theory of what makes something beautiful or meaningful or valuable like that. That's, that's axiology. Hmm. Metaphysics, sat. Epistemology, chit. Axiology, ananda. Isn't that so cool? Anyway, okay, let's continue. Now, God. So we introduce God. Uh, Richard Dawkins called it the God delusion, um, but it's actually the God solution, right? Because you'll see how the 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 although believing in God came first in human development, it seems like philosophically speaking, under the lens of intellectual scrutiny, it's actually very, very important that there's this figure called God because otherwise you have all of these philosophical problems that we just now discussed. But there are deep philosophical problems with the dualist notion of God. So now let's go to the next school. So there's all sorts of dualist schools that I can talk about. I could talk about um, Madhavas or Ananda Tirtha is his real name. I can talk about Ananda Tirtha's Dvaita Dvaita. I can talk about some form of qualified non-dualism. I mean, like a kind of Dvaita Dvaita of Nimbarka or Chaitanya's Achintya Beda Beda. So all these different flavors of dualism in India. In I'm just going to take a step back now and just take dualism like in its general principle as there is a God who stands apart from his or her or its creation. So the world is like this mechanistic structure and God sets it into motion. But God being the creator deity is not really involved in his, her, or their creation. So that's just the foundational principle of dualism. So let's just deal with it that way. Okay, so here are what I think are five problems with dualism. So the view is there is God. God is the Mahakarana, the primal cause, the primum mobile, the first mover. And this Mahakarana, this uh, first cause, this first mover, this God agent creates the world. And not only does God create the world, but God creates souls. And those souls have bodies and minds and they live in the world and interact with other souls and do a series of practices and ethical things in order to get closer to God. So the goal is to get closer to God, to become, not, not become one with God, but become closer in communion with God and ultimately to overcome suffering in the world. So now, 
I said earlier that the hedonist has this problem, old age, sickness, and death. The religious person, at least even the dualist, doesn't necessarily have this problem because they be- they believe and they accept the existence of an immortal, immortal, imperishable soul. So this soul, unlike the body and mind, doesn't emerge from matter, you see. So it's, it solves the problem of the hard problem of consciousness, soul first, matter later. So the soul exists eternally, created by God, perhaps, and it lives with God. And so even when the body dies, the soul survive. So this is why religious people often, you'll notice, have um, a better ability to deal with the loss of loved ones. Not always, but they have um, structures and systems, at least intellectual, some kind of scaffolding in place that gives them some sense of meaning when their loved ones do die. It's not like they're gone forever. The body and mind are gone. Their loved ones are gone. No, rather they've quote unquote moved on, moved to a better place. That's why even the most atheist people, when they're asked difficult questions by their children, will make pseudo spiritual and religious responses. Haven't you heard? The most atheistic parents in the world, when the child asked, where did, where did mommy go? She'll say to a better place because she knows like, like you, you need some kind of answer for the human spirit for what happens when the body and mind is no longer here. So ethically, axiologically, the theory of the soul is actually quite good. You know, it's quite good because it gives you um, something to stand upon and claim that I am an eternal, infinite, immortal being. Not infinite, but definitely eternal being. And therefore, I'm not afraid of death as I would be. And this can, if you really, really buy into it, most people today who are religious are just charvakas parading around with the badge of like, I go to this church and I profess this faith. So I'm talking about real theists, okay? Which is is in America and many parts of the world now becoming increasingly rare. So please don't judge the people around you who claim to be Christian uh, by these metrics, okay? Because I'm talking about a real theist, a theist who actually accepts the existence of God, actually, not just as a matter of intellectual accent because their parents made them or because they want to belong to a church, but they actually believe God exists who cre- and, and created the universe. And they actually believe that they are an immortal child of God, a soul and not a body and a mind. At the very least, they will be free from the fear of old age, sickness and death because those things can be understood in the context of, um, oh, good, Adi, good, nice to hear. Uh, <laughs> no, Anthony said, Richard Dawkins has left the room. Christopher Hitchens denies he was ever in the room. That's <laughs> so funny. But yeah, uh, <laughs> these are just two prominent atheists of our time. Yes. Um, who use fancy words and sound very intelligent. But if you really poke carefully, you'll see their metaphysics can be torn to shreds easily. So anyway, as hopefully we've done. I mean, I hope I'm not talking a big talk here. I hope I'm actually demonstrating how these metaphysics are all very wishy-washy. Anyway, so now dualists, they have something important to say. Yes, it is Adi. That is that is my number. Yes. So uh, there's something very important to say, which is axiologically, ethically, it's quite satisfying on the level of human fulfillment to accept the existence of a God and a soul. However, while it might be axiologically satisfying, it might not be epistemologically valid. So you, how do you know that there is a God? How do you know that there is a soul? So this is one problem that often causes people to lose their religion or lose their faith. They just can't buy something, however axiologically good it is, they can't buy it unless they have some epistemological grounds to stand for. Um, Sanatana Dharma rises to that challenge and says, you need philosophy. If you don't have philosophy, if you don't have a strong intellectual grasp on your tradition, chances are you'll, most of the time, more often than not, either not be as powerfully devoted to the tradition as you could be, or you'll just fall off. Because you need some kind of epistemological certainty, you see. Okay. (laughs) Gregory, that was beautiful. Minds as incisive and brilliant as Dawkins and Hitchens are impossible to explain without God's existence. That's beautiful. I love that so much. Thank you for that. That's 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 a much bigger brain response than the one I was giving. So thank you, Gregory. Okay, so... 
dualist problem, right? Now, the first one I've already pointed out that it's an axiological uh, axiological benefit, but not with enough epistemological grounding. It's not enough to just buy into scriptures just because the scripture said so. It might not be enough to go on, or just because my 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 religious authority said so. I need more than that. I myself need to see for myself that this is true. So to this response, the yogi says, "Yes, Baba, don't worry about believing things. Just experience them. Who who can say God exists except the one who's seen her?" So Sri Ramakrishna, his appeal to Swami Vivekananda, who's of a very kind of uh, scientific, empirical predisposition, was, you know, Swamiji, in the story, Swami Vivekananda, young Narendranath, asked Sri Ramakrishna, Sir, have you seen God? And Sri Ramakrishna, without missing a beat, said, Yes, I have. I, I see God more clearly than I can see you now. So notice, Sri Ramakrishna's claim about God is not premised on scripture. It's not premised on uh, faith or belief. It's premised on empirical first-hand experience. So this is the approach of the yogi. The scientific approach of the yogi is say, don't accept realities that you can't directly experience, okay? <laughs> Gare is asking, how many other schools of thought do you have left? I'm sorry, Gare. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get through them quickly. Um, I think I have, I don't know. I'll see, I'll see. I, I, I have like 10 in mind, but I won't do 10. I think today I'll only really get like four or something like you know, yeah, there's so much. There's just so much I want to just like pour into this space. So I hope you, yeah. No, I, I, I like we've had seven, five, seven hour lectures here before. We won't, Sydney Ma will tell you, she's now working her way through that. I was like five and a half hour lecture that we did on the history of Indian philosophy where we tracked all Indian thinking from the Vedas all the way to like the most modern Hatha yoga studio in California. So <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. We'll see where the flow takes us, okay? For now though, I just want to say the epistemology of religious experience is not like what we typically associate with dualistic religion because it's not, <laughs> because it's not, uh, it's, <laughs> the chat is just so funny. I'm enjoying it so much. But it's not, um, you know, it's funny. Once I was watching, so I, I enjoyed chess and I was watching a YouTube video of Magnus Carlsen playing chess and streaming, right? And apparently someone in the chat was like, don't look at chat, play chess. So show some class. You know, don't look at chat, play chess. And Magnus Carlsen responded, it it must be um your first time here because if you wanted class, you wouldn't have. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> anyway, so. Here's my problem with this conception of dualism is like, oh, it has to be premised on faith. Not necessarily. Sri Ramakrishna showed Swami Vivekananda that it's not premised on faith, rather on experience. Just like in the scientific method, you don't have to have faith in the outcome of the experiment, but you do have to have faith in the method, in the procedure. So insofar as an experiment is reproducible, replicable, and observable in a tangible way to anyone anywhere who bothers to try the method, so too is spirituality observable, tangible, reproducible, replicable by anyone anywhere who sincerely and open-heartedly tries the method. So Swami Vekananda, although he couldn't accept Sri Ramakrishna as a guru, because guruhood is also something quite alien to him given his intellectual predisposition as a Brahmo Samaj follower, he couldn't accept God. It's certainly not God in the form like that. He wanted maybe a more philosophically elevated notion of God. But again, he couldn't accept the existence of such a God without directly seeing him experiencing him, con con conversing with him. So it's it's an empirical-based theism that we find in a lot of these Indian or Sanatana Dharma schools of philosophy, you see? So that's, I think, the first problem is if the problem with dualistic religion is epistemological, then we can solve for that if our claims are not based on um, just believing something in the scriptures, but based on direct experience. Now notice, all the great prophets have had direct experiences. 
right? They've, they've not to say just Ramakrishna, but Jesus, Buddha, they've all experienced something and they're speaking from their experience. Paul saw Jesus, not in person like the other evangelists, but he had a vision of the Christ and he was able to teach in Rome and all over the world. Um, this Christianity, this new brand of Christianity, not from believing in the scriptures that have came, that have come before him, but from directly interfacing with the Christ. So experience is predominant here in these Indian theistic schools. But there are other problems though with dualistic theism. And the other ones are metaphysical. So first, if God is the efficient cause, now here's the real um, problem. This is where we really get philosophical. If God is the efficient cause, nimitta karana, if, he, if, if God is the being who creates the world, like a potter creates the pot, then with what did he create this world? What is the upadanam? What is the material substance out of which this world is created? You see, for something to be, it must have an efficient cause and a material cause. These are philosophically technical terms, but they're going to be quite important for this. Um... Yeah, uh, Amanda Ma is intuiting Ramanuja's response to this problem, but the dualist won't say that. And actually for very good reasons, as you'll see in a moment. So either... Uh, so God has to be both the efficient cause, but efficient cause needs a material cause. So if God is the efficient cause, then we have to ask, is there a material cause aside from God with which God can sculpt the world into existence? And the dualist will say yes. The dualist will say God is not really directly involved in creation in this way. God is transcendent. God exists in a super sensual realm beyond the mind, beyond the thoughts, beyond the words. God exists in that exalted plane like heaven like the kingdom of heaven, even if the kingdom of heaven is within, it has to be beyond the physical world. Why? Because the physical world is anything but God. If God is defined as that perfect being, remember, for this to be axiologically valuable, ethically and, and you know, valuable from the point of view of beauty, uh, uh, meanings and fulfillment systems like that, God has to be perfect, unchanging. I didn't mention this because I'm taking it for granted, but I think it's worth mentioning. God is always conceived of as that perfect being, eternal because he is beyond time, all pervasive because he's beyond space, ever free because he is beyond cause and effect. He's not an effect. There's no cause acting upon him. He might be the ultimate cause, but he himself is not an effect. He is beyond time and beyond space. Why? Because time and space limit. And so for God to be God, God can't be limited by anything like time, space, or cause and effect. God must be that being which is transcendent to time, space, cause and effect. That by definition is God. A God who is imperfect is no God at all, right? So God being perfect and the world being changeful, full of death and disease and decay, full of evils of all sorts, both natural and man-made, how can that have anything to do with God except as an effect from a cause, except as a creation? So God cannot make the world like with uh, we'll talk about him using himself as a, as a medium in just a bit but for most dualists god doesn't make the world with his own so he, he makes it and stands aside from it and then like watches from above or something you know <laughs> or watches from within or wherever he's just in his transcendental realm watching okay so now here's the problem we're back to ex nihilo because if god is making the world out of not himself then he has to be making the world out of nothing so again, it's that same metaphysical problem of creation ex nihilo. So God created something out of nothing. Now, unlike the Charvaka, the theist at least has one way of defending herself. She can say, well, it's God though, right? <laughs> God can do anything. So while it's impossible for us to create something out of nothing, and while it is indeed philosophically preposterous to suggest that something can come out of nothing, why should we limit God to our philosophical, like, hair-splitting logical problems? Like, why should God be um, judged based on our limited intellects? What's philosophically cogent for us is baloney for God. It's God. He can do 
he's God, you know, <laughs> like he can do whatever he wants. So if she wanted to, she could, of course she could make something appear out of nothing. That's the definition of Shakti actually in some of these Bhakti schools. Like she, she makes the impossible possible. So that's one response, right? It's not that satisfying though, because again, notice you just have to take it on faith or, or better yet experience. Yeah. It's a vibhuti flex. God just has vibhuti. God just has power. So if God wanted to, she could create something out of nothing. Why not? But that's not very satisfying. This creation ex nihilo. We can do better and we do do better. Haha, <laughs> do do. Anyway, so this is the first problem with the, the this school. By suggesting that God is the creator. Yeah, exactly, Jhanam. How does that actually work, right? For oh, oh, um, vibudi just means power, just like the, the ability to do something. So it's just by it's a fiat. You know, in philosophy, we have this thing called fiat. Fiat means you just have to give it to me. You know? So you just have to like give me that, that God can do this. And and again, as I said, that's not a very good ground. Um. yeah okay okay Janam is asking now in the chat like so how does God do it well okay Indian theology will give you like a huge metaphysic you know first there's first God evolves a substance called Prakriti and then Prakriti is evolved into Mahat and Mahat is evolved into the Buddhi which is evolved into Ahankara and the Ahankara is evolved into the Manas and the Manas create the Gyanindriyas which in turn create the Karmindriyas and all these ten Indriyas together project out into existence the Tanmatras and from the Tanmatras come the Mahabhutas so from the 24 Tattva system of Sankhya we can say God evolves the world out of some substance some maybe ex nihilo substance in some some case <laughs> fiat currency um <laughs> i i spent some fiat currency today i came home with nothing but qualia the struggle is real <laughs> these are awesome like philosophy department jokes <laughs> anyway fiat is when you say something and, and it has to be true because you're saying it so you go to someone and say here's five dollars you have to accept that this is five dollars because it's fiat currency similarly if i say god created the world out of nothing and it's god so god can do that it's just a fiat you have to accept that that's true of God. But again, I don't think that's metaphysically sustainable or epistemologically sustainable. Wow, a lot of big words being bandied about today. You're going to think that I'm smarter than I am. So anyway, now let's talk about um, the next problem. How could God create the world out of nothing? Certainly God could not. But anything that's created must also have an end. So this is another law of logic. Like anything that's created has an end. You can't conceive of something that is endless and yet has a beginning. Do you see? If something is endless, it must also be beginningless. And I can prove this mathematically or geometrically. Imagine a point here. Now imagine that that point is endless. So it stretches into infinity towards the right. And it's nothing towards the left. If you trace that point far enough, you're going to get an endless left. Do you see? Do you understand? Right? If I have one point and then I stretch it into infinity on this, this axis going to the right, then... At any point on this axis, if I go far enough, it's going to seem like there's an infinite left as well. So notice a point can't be infinitely projected into the future without also being infinitely projected into the past. Do you see the problem? So if you're going to claim that there is a world, Jagat, and if you're going to claim that that world is infinite, then you must also claim that that world has been there infinitely before this moment. So the world is both endless and beginningless. Is that clear? And this is actually the Hindu concept of creation. There's pralaya and there's shrishti. There's invol involution where everything goes back to its primordial substance. And then there's um, evolution where everything comes out of its seed form and turns into the universe. So it's impossible for this to be started at any point. Because if it's indeed endless, then it must have started at one point. 
So you could say, okay, that doesn't have to be endless. Fine, fine. The world doesn't have to be endless. Let's just say the world had a clear start and a clear end. Fine. But what about souls? Because if souls had a clear start, that means if God if God created souls, we're, we're in trouble. Because anything that's created must end. So if you say something had a start, something therefore has an end. So if a soul has a start, this is a huge problem because then the soul has an end. Notice you lose all of your axiological claims. Do you see how this is like a game of chess? You can win a rook, but you will lose your queen here. You lose the main thing that the theist was going for. A value system, a system of ethics, a system of meaning, a system of fulfillment. All of that is premised upon the eternal nature of the soul. So if the soul has a beginning, the soul must have an end. It's thereby not eternal. If the world has a beginning and the world has an end, it's thereby not eternal. It's not a place that the soul can work out its karma in. So you're left with a very peculiar notion. God didn't create the soul, nor did he create the world. The world the souls and God all exist as eternal categories alongside one another. God being the control controller of soul and world, but not the creator. I mean, isn't this, this is like theism that you, you could, you just, you, you never hear it really from most theists in the world. It's like very sophisticated theism, right? But we have a problem. And can anybody tell me just for this to be interactive? I know we're like already an hour or so in, and I still have some material to cover. So maybe some of you, can you already intuit the problem with this? Thus far, I've said God cannot create souls, right? God cannot create the world. The world and souls exist alongside God as infinite eternal categories, which are beginningless and endless. What's the problem with that statement? There's Ishvara, God, who is eternal, the controller. There is Jiva, souls, individual souls, a plethora of them in all sorts of different realms, which are themselves eternal, endless and beginningless. And then there is a world, all sorts of worlds, like all different Brahmandas, all floating in the, whatever, this whole created universe. That's beginningless and endless. So now there are three beginningless, endless infinities. Can you tell me what's the problem with this? <laughs> exactly. So this is, the, this is the thing. You don't, this wouldn't be a problem if you accepted by fiat that God doesn't need to play by these rules. Right, so if you are if you are ready to accept that God is that being which we cannot really know anything about or cannot limit in any way, and and that's a very valid and important theological approach, actually. You know, like to say, like I actually we can't know anything about God. God's ways are mysterious, so fuck it. No, we can't do any philosophy. So let's just reason based on scripture and based on what we what we do know about God. You know, or not even that. Notice cultures, religious cultures that are not into reasoning about God on the premise of reason or metaphysics will still reason. They'll just reason on the axiom of scripture. So it's based on like what's in the Torah or what's in the Bible or what's in the Quran, like that. So you you you, you can't offer arguments unless you can back it up with something in those books. But those books themselves are premised on experience. So we're left in this peculiar situation where short of experience, what can we really use except reasoning? And so here we'll say the, the skeptical theist, it's a view actually within dualism, skeptical theist will say, I'm not going to resolve this problem because it's not a problem. It's a problem for me in my finite, you know, limited intellect, but it's not a problem for God. For God, the possible, the impossible can be made possible. So you're right. What's the problem? It won't be a problem to the skeptical theist. However, your faith better be strong because unless you have real faith in God, which I argue can only be founded upon experience, then you'll you find that skeptical theism can't take you through the rough parts of life, you know, because then you'll you'll start to question like these things. And without a strong intellectual foundation, 
there'll be trouble. So notice the the Indian, I keep saying Indian, but I mean Sanatana Dharma. The project here is to get a theism that is founded not only upon scripture, the authority of the Vedas, not only upon direct experience, but also upon reasoning. Tarka or Satarka. Some kind of some kind of intellectual satisfaction is necessary. And it's possible, right? So, okay. So what's the problem? I just said that God exists and God is eternal, but souls exist and souls too are eternal. And the world exists and the world too is eternal. God didn't create the souls. God didn't create the world, but God is their controller. So God, the infinite category, souls, the infinite category, and the universe, the infinite category, all exist alongside one another. What's the problem here? Logically. Philosophically. Oh, Mario is saying, Hindu cosmology, the existence of an eternal and infinite reality precedes the creation of the universe. Ah, but if the universe was created, it therefore must also end. And if jivas are created, they therefore must also end. You see. So the world was not created. God did not create the universe. God just controls it. And God didn't create jivas either. God just like saves them or, you know, helps them out or whatever. But all these exist independently of one another, alongside one another like that. That's what the dualist might say. Okay, the problem with this is how can you have three infinities? That's preposterous. Like, you know, how can you have one infinity and then another infinity alongside it because they'll limit one another. Okay, now I know Cantor's theorem might come to the rescue here. So if I was a dualist committed to the idea of many infinities, I would just pull Cantor's theorem on you. I would say, like Cantor demonstrated in his mathematics that some infinities are larger than others. You know, do you know the fault in our stars that they, they kind of play on Cantor's theory? Some infinities are larger than others. It's true. Fabricio once, he's an economics professor, he once here showed us Cantor's theory, which is really cool. It's in a Q&A buried somewhere deep in the Patreon discography. But Cantor's theory proves that infinities can exist alongside each other. But again, that's like this like vague mathematical hack. And by the way, Godel, who I talked about earlier, uses Cantor's theory to show that mathematical axioms are inherently self-contradictory. So the thing about Cantor is his whole some infinities are larger than others is actually one step away from rubbishing mathematics entirely. It's ridiculous, actually, from a logical point of view. And math being pure reason and pure logic, it doesn't hold up to this idea of like different infinities being able to coexist with one another. Because if something is infinite and some other thing is infinite, they must limit one another. If Purusha is infinite and Prakriti is infinite, then they, that can't be true because Purusha is limited by Prakriti and Prakriti lim limited by Purusha. Prakriti is not Purusha and Purusha is not Prakriti. Those seem like clear limits on this so-called limitless infinite thing, right? So therefore, you can't have three eternal categories. Um, so that's the problem. Okay, done. Third problem with dualistic religion. It's this. Uh, so why would God control the world? And even if God created the world, why would God desire to do this? So you've heard this problem in this in these lectures before. A God with desire is not God. For to have a desire, actually, if you look at it philosophically, it is to be acted upon. So remember, God is beyond cause and effect. So if God is with the desire, then therefore something must have caused that desire. Maybe a feeling of lack or a feeling of boredom or a craving for devotees or a desire to experience a world or something. There must be something that caused God to have that desire. So therefore God is an effect. Even if it's an internal cause, still God is an effect. That can't be. And to have desire is to imply some kind of lack. A lack within God, that can't be. That's preposterous. So notice, the idea of God desiring to create a world is clearly a problem. So why would God create the world or souls? And the answer is he didn't. Souls in the world just exist alongside God. Okay, that's, that's I think, the theist's strongest response to that um, problem. And finally, 
there's a deeper problem. Actually, maybe I'll give you two more problems. A deeper problem is, um, it's called Paratva and Saulabhya. So if God is transcendent, Paratva, Paratva means transcendentness, actually, then God is not Saulabhya. Saulabhya means easily attainable. If something is easily attainable, it must be here and now. But if something is here and now, that thing is imminent and therefore not transcendent. Really, it's the problem of transcendent and it's being irreconcilable to the imminent. So which is it? Is God beyond the world or is God in the world? You know, which is it? It it has to be, thank you, Mario. It's good to have you. It has to be one or the other. Because if God is here, then God's not there. If God is there, then God is not here. So you have this very real tension between the paratva and the um, saulabhya, between the transcendent and the imminent. So that's a problem that we have to solve that dualistic religion can't really solve. And the deepest problem, probably the affliction of all dualistic theistic religion is the problem of evil. I don't need to sketch it out here. We've talked about it in depth. I think we even have a series called Theodicy Trilogy, three videos on the problem of evil. Simply put, if God created the world, then God sucks because the world sucks. It's full of suffering, right? As one very famous atheist said, if God exists, he must personally apologize to me for the Holocaust. And that's a good response because if God does exist, then God is permissive of horrible things like Sokarno's genocide and, you know, of Pol Pot's genocide and of all the micro little things that happen between individuals and all the human tragedies and everything is so fraught in this world, right? Um, Bye, Melissa. So what are we going to do? It seems like God is either the cause of all the evil in the world or at least negligent and permissive of all the evil in the world. You see, so that's the problem of evil. So how are we going to resolve all of that? Now we come to Ramanuja's solutions. So here's where I'd like to place before you uh, a very interesting kind of philosophy that we haven't really um haven't really examined. And, and St. Anthony is right. There are a lot of schools of spiritual philosophy that say you can't use regular logic because regular logic is what is called um, anadishtana. It's groundless and baseless. It just it goes in a circle like a snake eating its own tail. So the kind of logic and reasoning we need is actually called sattarka. It's a type of logic premised upon direct personal experience and it's premised upon a mind refined through meditation. So the mind must be to some extent infinite and vast to be able to comprehend these infinities. However, the purpose of reasoning is not to limit God. This is actually very deep. This is actually the reason why this lecture is a sadhana in and of itself. This is difficult, right? There are some concepts in this lecture that's a little difficult. It's like doing yoga poses, you see. It's very deep. The reason we reason is not to limit God to our categories. It's to expand our category so that we become God. You see, reasoning is for us. It's a sadhana. Reasoning is the sadhana that you do to expand your mind to infinite proportions beyond the can of regular thinking. Without this reasoning, we'd be stuck with our regular mundane things. Mind, if you must think, if you must analyze, if you must judge, then don't judge your neighbors, brothers, and sisters. If you must think, then don't think about the trivia of the world. If you must argue and reason and speak, then mind, I demand that you speak and reason and analyze and judge only the highest. I demand that you cultivate the loftiest, most elevated thoughts. And as a result, you'll feel, some of you might even feel it now, this thrill. Do you feel that sense of like expansiveness? Like, you know, like just from holding these ideas in your mind, like holding a posture in the body can create a tremendous shift in your qualia. So too can holding these thoughts like give you this sense of, it's it's far vaster than I could have ever imagined, you know? Yes, you, you get this like a like a nebri there's a inebriation here, which of course can be a trap. Like you can get so hung up and so caught up on intellectual pleasures and you can forget what we're doing this for. We're reasoning so that our mind can take on God-shaped proportions. This is my defense of reason. 
Okay, let's continue. So, gang, are you ready for some Ramanuja? Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it's late on the East Coast. <laughs> so, remember, if you have to go to bed, go to bed. Like, this is going to be recorded and you can watch it. I just want to mop up the last of what I have here. Ready for some Ramanuja? <laughs> okay, so here we go. Um, I'm not, I'm obviously not going to get too deep. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to get too deep into Ramanuja's philosophy. I'm just going to give you a sketch of it, okay? A brief overview of Ramanuja. Because as many people have said, Ramanuja has offered the most sophisticated form of theism there is. You saw how dualistic theism has a lot of problems. Multiple infinities existing alongside one another. A god that desires. Um, um, problem of evil. <laughs> yes. Penultimate, yes. I, 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 I can't say. Like, we'll see what she's. I feel like it's, it's a matter of inspiration. I don't know. So, okay, let's do it. Because I'm going to compare a little bit to Kashmir Shaivism as well. Don't worry. There's going to be Q and A. Certainly, I just, I, I just have to mop this last bit up. Okay, let's start. So, Ramanuja. Uh, maybe a little bit of a, a biography before we begin. So we'll step away from philosophy just for a moment. Already, we've talked about some pretty cosmic ideas. Let's just talk about. Ramanuja the man, not Ramanuja the philosopher. Because really, a lot of who he is influences what he says. See, spiritual philosophy is not like other philosophy. It's about who you are more than what you can think. Yeah, this is going to be penultimate. So it's second to last because I have one more thing, Kashmir Shaivism, which we are comparing this to, right? So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you like eight things, about eight or nine things about Ramanuja's philosophy. Then I'm going to tell you 12 things, problems with Ramanuja's philosophy. And those 12 things, are comparisons to Kashmir Shaivism and Sri Ramakrishna, right? So now let's go to Ramanuja's, like, just a, a short biography of, of him. The interesting thing is, in spiritual life, who you are matters more than what you teach or what you say. The personality of the teacher is what matters. Unlike anything else in the world, you could be a great chemist and be a total dolt or a jerk in, in, in quote-unquote, life outside of your lab. Like, you could just go about your day and, you know, be whoever you want. And, and you could still teach chemistry. You could still be a great chemist, right? However, in spiritual life, you have to walk what you, you teach. Otherwise, your words will have no impact on anybody. You won't really be able to move people or teach if you, you yourself don't have some kind of inner experience. So on Guru Purnima, one thing to recognize is our teachers are not just acharyas. They're not just like pandits with an intellectual understanding. Sri Ramakrishna compared such people to crows, I'm sorry, vultures, although they seem to soar very high in this lofty intellectual realm. When you look at their behavior, they only care about carcasses and carrion and charnel pits. In other words, these Vultures, their gaze is fixed on the earth, selfishness, worldliness, like that. Although they profess such high intellectual ideas, right? So it's not about being a pandit, someone who is academic or intellectual. It's not about memorizing Sanskrit texts. It's about living the life. So the most important thing in studying anyone's philosophy, especially in like this tradition or series, is to study who they are, what they were, not what they said. Right? So let's look at what Ramanuja was. There's an interesting thing about his life um, in that he was a great reformer and he came after Shankara, actually. So I wanted to talk about Shankara's life story too and give you like Shankara's Advaita, but I'll save that for another time. I'm just going to focus on Ramanuja and, and see how he resolves the problem of evil and, and all of that stuff um, in his new form of theism. Okay, so against the backdrop of Charvaka, against the backdrop of dualistic theism, let's now look at Ramanuja. Anyway, let me take a vote. Would you would you like to hear? I mean, okay, it's it's, it's going to be divided. Never mind. And because uh, I was going to ask if you want me to skip the life story and just do the philosophy, since we're already on a philosophical like bent. 
Um, or if you want to hear the biography, that might add another like 15 minutes to the lecture though. So the reason I'm not going to ask is because I know that many of you will just be nice and just say that you want it, even though you won't. Right. So <laughs> I don't, I don't trust the honesty of your answer. You're too, you're too invested in me as a person to be anything but nice. So I don't know if <laughs> I'm trying to decide whether it's really right now valuable, but maybe it's enough to just say that, right? Maybe it's enough to just say like the life matters more than the philosophy, regardless of what the life is. Maybe that's what, <laughs> okay. So just a brief philosophy then he was born um, to very pious Brahmin parents in Tamil country in South India. I think it's kind of interesting that all these great Acharyas, so many of them seem to come from South India. You know, so Shankara, he's from Kerala, you know, and then Ramanuja is Tamil. And of course, Madhava is, I think, Nimbarka is Telugu, I think. And Madhava might be Karnatic of some sort from Karnataka. Okay, so there's all, all these like philosophers. A lot of them seem to, I wonder why. Maybe it's just they're more orthodox in the South or something. And they're more like, they're more interested in these Brahmanical customs. I don't know. But anyway, Ramanuja, the story behind it is that there was a, a certain man. His name was Sarva Kratu. Sarva Kratu was like, uh, he was called Sarva Kratu because of his proficiency in Vedic rituals. Now, a lot of what I'm going to tell you in this biography is drawn from Swami Tapasyanandaji's excellent book, Bhakti Schools of Vedanta. I'll, I'll suggest it later. And there he does a comparative study of all these different Bhakti schools like Ramanuja, Nimbarka, Chaitanya, etc. So a lot of what I'm going to tell you now is drawn from that book, Swami Tapasyanandaji. And he in turn is drawing from another book, a biography whose name escapes me now on Ramanuja. I think it's called like Ramanuja's life and teaching. Anyway, so Ramanuja, according to this account, by the way, this is an insider account. So this is not an external anth like anthropological inquiry into Ramanuja. It's what his followers and his community says about him. Okay. So there's like legendary tales about this too. It's not just like a factual history. It's history mingled with legend, but for the followers, there's no difference really. So Ramanuja legendarily was born of two very, very, uh, pious Brahmin people. One was Sarvakratu, so named because he was great at all the Vedic rituals. He could do all the yagyas and what have you. And also his mother, Kantimati. So Kantimati and Sarvakratu, the problem is they could not have any children. They had no issue. So after many years of marriage, there was no child. So Sarvakratu and his wife went to a place and they did a special austerity. I don't know if it was just Sarvakratu. It could have been just him, but he went in a special austerity. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he had a vision. And in his vision, Vishnu Narayana, remember in Shankara's case, Shiva came to his mother and said, I will be born your child. So all these Acharyas, a lot of them have a divine origin story, like Padmasambhava, born of a lotus like that. So they have a divine origin story. So here it was Vishnu's couch, Adi Sesha. Now, this word is very important for the philosophy we're about to study. Sesha. Shesha means, um, Sesha means servant. It can mean servant or it can mean like um, attribute or property or mode. But really it means Sesha, servant. So Adi Sesha is the first servant and meaning he's Vishnu's couch. He's what Vishnu sleeps on in the ocean of milk in Vaikuntha, Vaikuntha Loka, okay? So this couch of Vishnu told Sarvakratu that he would be incarnated as his son. He would come into the world, a great teacher to restore Vaishnavism to the earth. Um, so obviously his father named him Ramanuja because Ramanuja is a name of Lakshmana and Lakshmana, who is the con co companion of Rama, is none other than this Ananta Adisesha. Okay, so that's his, 
divine birth story. He's Adi Sesha coming into the world as Ramanuja. So from a very young age, he already demonstrated a keen knack for philosophy. But beyond his intellectual prowess, he was actually, from a very young age, very devotional. So he was so enamored of all the sadhus and pilgrims that would walk by his house. Now, in the Tamil country, there's a very famous temple, um, the Varada Raja Temple in Kanchipuram. Now, Kanchipuram is famous for its silk, actually. So it's a place where you go and buy saris. So today, some people might show off like Kanchipuram silk. You know, There's Banaras silk, great silk in the north, and Kanchipuram, the premium silk in the south. Kanchipuram saris. Anyway, there's, it's, a, it's a temple town. There's a lot of temple culture in Kanchipuram. Now, this man, Ramaruja, as a young boy, he lived with his family in a city called Sri Perudumbur. And Sri Perudumbur is like on the way to Kanchi. So it's like, if you want to go to Kanchipuram, the temples there, you'd have to pass a lot of the times through Sri Pedrumbur. So young Ramanuja had the great fortune of like seeing a lot of great sages and, and not sages, but just people who would go to the temple. And among them, there was one named Kanchipurna, whose devotion was very awe-inspiring to Ramanuja. So Ramanuja would go and try to feed him. Now, this is a huge problem because Ramanuja is a Brahmin and Kanchipurna is not. He's a Shudra. And so there's a huge caste problem. And in the South, they're a bit more orthodox about that kind of stuff, at least in 13th century India. So uh, this is 12th century India, early 12th century India, right? So late 11th century, early 12th century. So caste rules were a big deal. Now, from a very young age, Ramanuja demonstrated his total disregard for caste rules. It was enough to him that Kanchipurna, this man walking by up and down, on his way to Kanchipuram, it was enough that he was a devotee of God. And so once um, Ramanuja gave him some food and he said, I can't take this food. I'm not a Brahmin. And this boy, Ramanuja, from a very young age was able to say, does it, what, what does it take to be a Brahmin? Does a sacred thread alone make one a Brahmin? No. Devotion to God alone makes one a Brahmana. Like that. So we already from a very young age, like Sri Ramakrishna, demonstrated an anti-caste sort of attitude. Okay, In the name of bhakti, in the name of devotion. So he was very devotional. Now at the age of 16, he was married off to a Rakshamba. And he started formally his Vedic studies under a very famous teacher at the time named Yadava Prakasha. Now the legend has it that Yadava Prakasha was a staunch non-dualist, like a Shankara Kevala Advaitin. But when we examine his works, we find that's actually not true. I think that's just there for poetic justice. Like they just want him to see, like want him to be the archetypical nemesis of Ramanuja Shankara. But actually he was probably more in line with the Beda Beda of Bhaskara than the Kevala Advaita of Shankara, just, just as a kind of academic addendum. Okay, so Ramanuja, he goes to Yadava Prakasha to study and he's studying at the feet of his guru. Now, guruship and shishaship, disciple and guru, it's a very sacred relation and often it involves service, personal service to the guru. So one day, the story goes, Ramanuja was massaging his guru's feet, which is a popular thing that happens in the Indian guru-student relationship. And the guru typically teaches, right? So Yadava Prakasha, during this episode, was teaching about... Um, a verse from one of the Upanishads and, and he was saying, the eyes of God are like the nates of a monkey. That was his interpretation of the verse. And Ramanuja, remember, he's so devotional. He has a heart for God. He couldn't bear this abuse. Now, remember, all along his discipleship, he already had this tension with his teacher because the teacher was a staunch non-dualist who believed that God was nirvishesha, nirguna, formless and absolute without any qualities or, or couldn't be prayed to, couldn't be beseeched, nothing like that. So, uh, Obviously, this tradition might be very hostile towards an adorable God that one prays to and communes with. But Ramanuja, in his heart of hearts, was a bhakta. He wanted a God that he could pray to and talk to. So although there had been a lot of tension in his relationship with Yadava Prakasha to begin with, it was this moment that it all came to a head. He started to cry. He didn't say anything. 
He is so obedient to his guru, he was just like massaging the guru's feet. But he started to cry hot tears. And the tears fell on Yadava Prakasha's feet. And Yadava Prakasha was like, the fuck, man? Why are you crying on my feet? What's the problem? And uh, he looked up and with tear-filled eyes, you know, he said, Gurudev, I don't agree with that interpretation. And Yadava Prakasha thought, let me humor my student. Sure, tell me how would you interpret this text? And through the rules of Nirukta and Vedic Mimamsika exegesis, you know, there are all these rules of how you read texts like Vedas and Upanishads, the Lakshanam, all of that. He, he's able to say, no, the eyes of God are not like the nates of a monkey, the balls of a monkey. The eyes of God are like lotuses and beautiful and all that. So he gives a, 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 an interpretation that's friendly to theism, to the personal God of the theist. And Yadava Prakasha is like, ah, not bad, not bad. And he pats his students shoulder but in his heart of hearts he's like fuck this guy is about to become a very dangerous opponent for non-duality soon he's going to leave me he's going to found his own school and he's going to tear non-duality to shreds we can't have that so Yadra Prakasha is rumored to have hatched uh, upon a plan to kill him believe it or not to kill Ramanuja because he was worried that Ramanuja would turn into a very fierce and dangerous duelist <laughs> so the story goes they planned to kill Ramanuja uh, one day when they went on a pilgrimage to the Ganga. So they went on a pilgrimage and the plan was to like kill him. And then interestingly enough, the plan was to all take a bath in the Ganga to be purified of the sins and then, you know, go home. So it's like, it's like that old Christian notion. I can do whatever I want as long as I say my Hail Marys or confess. It's like that. So obviously this is like a, an abuse of Indian spirituality, right? Like the idea that the Ganga purifies all sins. Now you being used as a tool to justify sin. Like there are, there's a lot of that we can read into this episode. Anyway, yeah, how dualistic to plant to kill him. Yeah, to plant to kill him. Anyway, so they all go to this thing, the pilgrimage, and he has a relative who is also a gurubai, who's part of that gurukula, and his relative, sympathetic to him, tells him of the plan, of the conspiracy. So now informed, Ramanuja legs it. He's Audi 5000, and he runs away from the party, he runs into the forest, and he stops under a tree, and he's like panting and panting and panting. He's trying to catch his breath. He's thirsty, he's hungry, and he's frightened. At this point, a hunter couple shows up, a woman and a man, just randomly in the forest. I said to him, what's the problem, child? You're, you're a Brahmana. You're here in the forest. And remember, Brahmanas shouldn't even speak to hunters. Like this is like a caste too low to even look at. This caste in India is like the most deplorable caste because they kill animals and a lot of them are butchers too. The Vaidis, you know, hunters. So, but because... Brahmanuja is so, you know, devotional to everyone and in all times and all places. He happily talks to them and he says, yes, mother, yes, father, you know, this whole thing happened. I'm so thirsty. I don't know what to do. And they said, don't worry, we'll take you to a well. You can drink some water and then tomorrow we'll take you out of this forest. And he's lost. Indian jungle. Can you imagine? And we'll take you South Indian jungle. A lot of bugs. We'll take you back home. So they take him to a well. He goes down into the well to draw the water. He drinks the cool water. And when he comes up out of the well, he finds that he's back in his hometown, Sri Parudumbur, just miraculously. So that was, a, that was a miracle, an early miracle in Ramanuja's life. And you know what's crazy? He goes back to his guru and continues his service of his guru and his studies. That's the craziest thing. Like he has no malice in his heart towards his guru. He just goes back to the gurukula and he continues studying. Um, and his guru is like, scared senseless now like oh my god what happened he's back but the guru is so impressed by you know the fact that he's there at all that the guru continues teaching him and they actually go on for some time like that but the tensions eventually came to a head it was too much to bear and ramanuja of his own will left yadava prakasha left his gurukula and went on to serve the deity in a temple in kanchipuram at the varada raja temple i believe so he's now a priest so he's a vedic teacher 
Yeah, kill me once, shame on Guru. Kill me twice, shame on. <laughs> so he leaves his Guru. He goes to the um, temple, and he's now a priest in the temple. Okay. Meanwhile, in Sri Rangam, there is a community of Vaishnavas that are centered around a devotional mystical tradition called the Alvar tradition. So Alvar means one who has dived deep into the bliss of God. The Alvars are a series of 12 ecstatic devotees of Lord Vishnu. Lord Krishna, Lord Rama, like that. They're Vaishnavas and they're these Tamil, like kind of South Indian madcaps, madcaps for God. And they left a lot of great poetry and devotional literature. Foremost amongst them is the um, Nam Alvars, Divya Prabandham. And there's all these like great, Tamil poems, and they're not in Sanskrit because they represent what is a folk tradition, not a Sanskritized, like elite, Brahmanical, academic, Vedic tradition, but rather a tradition of the people centered around devotion to God. And it's very tantric in many ways. Anyway, so this Alvar tradition, it was very prominent in India and their main stronghold of influence was in Sri Rangam. At that time, there was a great teacher named Yamunacharya. Remember, this is like the early 12th century. Yamunacharya was the grandson of one Natamuni, and Natamuni was like the compiler of a lot of Nam Alvar's works. So Nam Alvar being perhaps one of the most famous of the Alvars, this like series of devotional mystics. And his great poems were all put together in a system by Natamuni. Now, Natamuni's grandson, Yamuna, who was at first born to luxury and pomp and later on went to live a simple life, became the great teacher and leader of the Vaishnava community. But Yamunacharya was approaching the end of his life and he was looking for a successor, someone to replace him as the leader of the Vaishnava community. And when he heard about Ramanuja, the great intellectual prowess that he was, and also his tremendously powerful bhakti for Lord Narayana, he thought that was the perfect candidate. But the problem was, when he went to go and get Ramanuja, he saw Yan, Ramanuja in the company of Yadava Prakasha, so he dared not go close, because Yadava Prakasha is coming from a hostile group, which sounds a bit like, it's like a gang war. It seems like all these different gangs. <laughs> you know? Anyway, so they didn't want to go and talk to Ramanuja because he was hanging out with all the non-dual kids. You know? <laughs> Okay, so now, how does this work? Ramanuja is with Yadava Prakasha. How do we get, oh, bye, dear man. How do we get him? How do we get him for our, our community? So what happens is Yamunacharya prays. He prays to Lord Vishnu Narayana to give him Ramanuja. And believe it or not, shortly after the prayer, Ramanuja splits from Yadava Prakasha. So they think that it has something to do with one another. And now Ramanuja is like working in the temple and he decides to go visit Yam Yamunacharya. He knows Yamunacharya's life is coming to an end. And so he goes to visit Yamunacharya and horrifically, Yamunacharya has died by the time he gets there. When he gets there, he meets Yamunacharya and Yamunacharya is dead, but his hands are like, like this. Like, I don't know exactly how he did it, but it's like either like that or like this. Three fingers are clenched. And they're, they're all trying to figure out why his three fingers are clenched. So Ramanuja stands there and he makes three proclamations. The first was, I will remain in the Vaishnava fold and I will compose a commentary on Nam Alvar's works. And then one finger comes back up. Then he goes, um, okay, I will compose a commentary on the Shri, uh, on, 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 on the um, Badarayana Brahma Sutra, taking into consideration all the other commentaries and make one that is like genuine. Second finger comes up. And the final finger was, uh, in honor of Veda Vyasa, who composed the Vishnu Purana, I will leave behind a great Vaishnava with the name Parasharya, who is the father of Veda Vyasa. And the third finger came up. So that was his promise to Yamanacharya, Yamanacharya. And that's what made him the new leader. But he still wasn't the leader yet. He still went back to the temple and did some service there. Eventually, you know, skipping ahead, he does eventually move from Kanjipuram. He finishes his service of the deity there. He moves to Shirangam and he takes up his position as the head of that Vaishnava community. Now comes a very important story. Yadava Prakasha, 
who previously tried to have him killed, eventually was moved by his devotion and his exegetical works that he came to him and became his disciple. So Yadava Prakasha, previously a non-dualist, vehemently opposed to all theistic religion, now becomes Govinda Jir. That's his new name. And he's becoming a great bhakta now. Same thing happened with Shankara and Mandana Mishra, who was, you know, like Kumarila Bhatta, um, Mimamsaka, who was converted to Kevala Advaita and became a very great devotee of Shankara. So in India, this is how it works. If you're beaten in a debate, you have to convert to that person's school. I mean, because why would you hold to your own school if it was proven incorrect? So the moment you lose in a debate, you have to become your, your victor's uh, student. That's the rule. So you better not enter into debates with people because if you lose, you're now a Vaishnava or a Shaiva or a Kevala Advaitin or what have you. <laughs> so Yadava Prakasha becomes Govindajir. He joins up there. And all this happened. Now, this is a very famous story of Ramanuja. And I, I'll, I'll end with this, but the, uh, the story. And Ramanuja, apparently he went to Goshtipurna. Mahapurna, Kanchipurna, these were all his teachers, certainly. But he went to Goshtipurna to be initiated into a very secret and powerful Vaishnava mantra. This was to complete his training, right? It's the last thing they needed. So he went, he got the mantra, and he was told by his teacher, anyone who hears this mantra would be instantly liberated. However, if you reveal it publicly, you will certainly go to hell. It's a great sin to reveal your mantra publicly. So you know what Ramanuja did? I'm not saying you should do this with the mantras given to you by your gurus. But Ramanuja went to the nearest temple. He went on top of the spire of the temple. He called everyone together and he started loudly chanting and declaring the mantra and having everyone chant with him. When Goshtipurna heard this, he was outraged and he stormed up and grabbed Ramanuja. He was like, I don't know that he grabbed him, but probably. And he was like, what are you doing? You're going to go to hell. You've condemned me. What? I gave you this mantra. Now you give it to everyone. You're certainly going to hell. And Ramanuja with, with palms together said, Gurudev, you told me that anybody who hears his mantra will be liberated. If so many people here can be liberated at the cost of me going to hell, surely I would have done some good. It would have been a good thing. At that point, Goshtipurna falls to Ramanuja's feet and becomes the disciple. <laughs> so this to me is very special, you know, about the Guru-Shisha relationship. It's not about power. It's about truth. A guru who recognizes that their disciple has surpassed them will become the disciple of their former disciple. We have many examples of that. The most hostile teachers like Yadava Prakasha or Mandana Mishra become great disciples of Ramanuja in the former and Shankara in the latter. You see, there's something very beautiful, I think. Today on Guru Purnima, I thought I would say about this guru culture in India where it's about truth. It's about sadhana. It's about going closer to God. It's not about power imbalances or dynamics like that. And that's something we can take away from this story. Now, Historically, Ramanuja is important because he goes in what is called, yeah, right? He goes in what is called, <laughs> yeah, roles are reversed, tops and bottoms. Anyway, he goes on this role, uh, this thing called Dig Vijaya. I know that's what you were thinking, John. That's why I just completed the thought. So the Dig Vijaya means victory tour, right? Victory tour is where with your posse, you go on a tour and debate all the pundits everywhere. So that's what Ramanuja did. He went from city to city. I can imagine like a Pantera song here, you know? like a cowboys from hell, like kind of playing as Ramanuja and his posse enters into the team. I mean, enters into the city because he's challenging all the pundits and he's converting them all into Vaishnavism because he's defeating them all, you know? And there are all these beautiful, fanciful stories. I mean, not to say fanciful, but beautiful stories about like trying to write a commentary on um, Brahma Sutra and wanting to read Bodhayana's Vritti, but that was only available in Kashmir and they go over there. And like, apparently in Kashmir, the pundits were afraid to give him access to this text because he would learn it and beat all of them. So they pretended like it was missing, at which point the goddess of Kashmir, Sharada, herself appeared in a vision and handed him the text. And then he ran with the text 
and all the pundits from Kashmir were chasing him to kill him because he has this text, right? Um, eventually, he loses the text. They take it from him, maybe. But at that point, Kuresha, his disciple, had already memorized it. And so from Kuresha's memory of the text, he composed his basha on the, on the uh, Brahma Sutra. So all these beautiful stories. But essentially what I want to convey is he's important in Indian history because he converts a lot of temples to Vaishnavism because he defeats the pundits. And so the temples that were previously to this deity or that deity, they convert to Vaishnavism, except in two places. Wherever he went, he was victorious. And I think that is not only due to his philosophy, but to his personality as well, to who he was. Right? So I think that's very, very important just to stress that Ramanuja, the man, is about as important, if not more than Ramanuja, more important than Ramanuja, the philosopher. Okay. So Ramanuja, the philosopher. You're still with me? You're still game? Okay. Yeah, that was, that was a very brief bio. There's so much to it, but I think that's enough to kind of get a sense from of where he's coming from, right? Okay. So now, remember, his goal, and I should say this, his goal is to reconcile the Vedanta, which is a Brahmanical elite academic system, with the folk tradition of the Alvars, which is a devotional, mystical bhakti lineage. So he's trying to synthesize the head and the heart, right? So he doesn't want to just be a bhakta, a mystic. He doesn't just want to be a Vedantic philosopher, dry and intellectual. He wants to bring them together, probably for the reasons aforementioned. All theisms require a strong intellectual grounding, and all intellectual systems need a theism to rejuvenate it, or at least some kind of spirituality to rejuvenate it. Okay, so now remember all the problems with duality, right? How can God be the efficient cause and not the material cause? If God created the universe, out of what did he create it? The answer is, as Amanda Ma um, rightly um, intuited, is out of himself. God is both the efficient cause and the material cause. Now, this will be very, very reminiscent to you, you who have studied Kashmir Shaivism. Sva Icha, Sva Bittau, Vishwa Munmilayati, right? It's different though, for reasons I'll tell you in a bit. Now, God is both the efficient cause and the material cause, meaning God evolves the world into existence using himself as the substance for that. So therefore, Ramanuja's definition of God is that being who has Sva Rupa, innate intrinsic essence as satyam, he's the one true being, satyam, truth, jnanam, he's pure consciousness, pure omniscience, jnanam, um, he's anantam, satyam, jnanam, anantam, anantam means infinite, absolutely unlimited by cause, fact, time, space, etc., anantam, then he's anandam, he's bliss itself, not blissful, but bliss itself, and finally, this is important, he's amala tvam, mala means impurity, so amala, tva means ness, so amala means pureness. So it's the negation of impurity. So he's pure. Amala tvam. Okay, so God is pure bliss, consciousness, knowledge, and existence. Existence, consciousness, bliss, purity. That's God. That's his swarupa. Now his swabhava, according to um, Ramanuja, is eightfold, actually. He has eight qualities. And these qualities are auspicious qualities. Kalyana guna, auspicious qualities. The first of these is Aishwarya, which means lordship. He's the ruler of all things, Aishwarya. Then Bala, strength. He has a strength to create. Virya, the power to resist mutability. Like Virya could be energy. Tejas, he is splendor. You know? Jnana, he's a Sarvagyatva, omniscience. He knows everything. Aishwarya, Bala, Virya, Jnana, Tejas. Shakti, he has power, the power to create. So these are all six things, right? Shakti, te, Shakti Tejas, Bala, Aishwarya, Jnana. Um, 
What did I miss? Viria. Viria. So six things. But two more things. Uh, these are what you typically expect of God, auspicious qualities. But what's important is that what makes them attributes or qualities is that they don't necessarily have to do with this innate nature, but they have to do with how that nature interacts with others, right? Because qualities, attributes are typically relational in property. So he's Aishwarya, he's, he has lordship in relation of those to whom he lords over. He's a presiding deity over those who are in his domain. So he's, he's a lord in that sense. He's Bala, he's strong in that he upholds the universe. He's Teja, splendor in that he's the beauty and meaning in everything. He's Virya in that he resists change even in a changing world, you see? So these are all kind of relational properties. They're called Svabhava. And in truth, the words Swarupa and Swabhava are very close to one another. But it's important to Ramanuja philosophically to separate Swarupa from Swabhava. Very important. They're, they're, there's, a, there's a reason why he's going to do it, uh, and we'll tell you why in a bit. But two other attributes of Brahman are Jiva and Jagat. So earlier we said the world is an infinite category. So too is Jiva, infinite. Each soul is infinite. So do they exist apart from God in the relation of creator and created? No, they exist within God as an attribute of his infinitesimal, an infinite being. So God evolves the world and jivas eternally in a series of shrishtis and pralayas. Jivas exist eternally as individuals. Anutwa. Anutwa means they're each distinct individuals. They exist eternally as souls uh, in a part-to-whole relationship. So God is the whole and each soul is the part, a very, very small part of that unfathomable whole. And these souls, these jivas, they, they have kritva. Kritva means um, autonomy or agency. So they can do actions that are helpful to them or they can do actions that are harmful to them. So over innumerable creation cycles, they accumulate a tremendous storehouse of karma. Through their agency, they do stuff that oftentimes results in bad karma. And when they, when they do evil deeds, that bad karma literally contracts the soul. So the soul changes, it becomes contracted. Sankocha, it contracts as a result of bad karma. And as a result of good karma, it expands. Expansion is spiritual progress. So through good deeds, kriyas, good works, and through the grace of God, one expands. Right? Oh, good, Gare. I'm so happy to hear that. So you have to tell us how it goes in a bit. So now the soul is changing, right? The soul is expanding or contracting. The universe is changing. It's also expanding and contracting. Expansion is called shrishti when the universe evolves into being through the 24 tattvas of prakriti. And uh, contraction is called pralaya when the universe dissolves back into its seed form. So both of these, jiva and jagat, are together expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting over innumerable cycles of creation. Pralaya, shrishti, pralaya, shrishti, pralaya, shrishti, accumulating an innumerable innumerable number of karmas, some good, some bad. And spiritual life is all about replacing bad karmas with good karmas so the soul can expand and eventually expand so much that it attains, well, godhood, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Okay, so now notice in this model, God and the world are related in the way that sharira is related to shariri. Shariri means soul. Sharira means body. You have a sharira, a body, but you are a soul. So you, the soul, have a body as part of your attributes, as, as like your extension. So notice how in this space, we always use language, I am not the mind, I'm not the body, like that. Why? Because we, we're approaching it from a kind of Kevala Advaita Shankara point of view, or from a kind of Kashmir Shaiva point of view. But if you approach it from a point of view of Ramanuja, you are the body. 
And not, but not only the body. You are the body and yet you're beyond the body. You, the soul, the individual are both beyond the body and wholly imminent in the body. Do you see how this is a, a metaphor for transcendence and imminence? Not only are you transcendent to the body, you're also imminent in it. So the body is both you and yours. Do you see? That's the relationship that you have to your body. You are the shariri, the holder of the body, and you have a sharira, a body. And you know, you are to some extent the controller of that body. The body serves your purposes. It's through the body that you interact with the world. So the body is there for you, not you for the body. And when the body is gone, like all theists will say, you continue. So while the body is dependent on you for its existence, you aren't dependent on the body for yours. So not only are you a body, but you're beyond the body, right? And the body is controlled by you and serves your purposes. This is very important. Now, continuing, the you are the she-she and the body is the she-sha. She-she means the being and she-sha means the mode or the, you know, like attribute, but it can also mean the servant. So the connotation of she-she, she-sha is master and servant. So ideally, you are the master of the body and the body is your servant because it carries you around. You tell it to go here, it goes there. You know, um, you tell it to sit here and listen to long, boring lectures. It will comply or not always. Sometimes, sometimes the body becomes the sheshi, the master. And then you find that. <laughs> but ideally, you are the sheshi, the, the Lord, lady, and the body is the shesha, the lorded over, the controlled. And finally, you have the relation of prakari and prakara, which means substance and the mode describing that substance. These are all different phrases that Ramanuja uses to articulate what he calls apartak siddhi. Apartak siddhi in English means, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, but not, you're actually the boss of the body. So apartak siddhi means in Sanskrit, in English, doctrine of non-reciprocal dependence. It's like a relationship where she needs you, but you don't need her. Or he needs you, but you don't need her. Like that. So you don't need the body, but the body needs you. This is called apartaksidi, non-reciprocal dependence. Now, Jagat and Jiva exist in this apartaksidhi relationship because it depends. I mean, Jagat, the world depends on God for its existence, but God doesn't depend on the world. Jivas depend on God for their existence, but God doesn't depend on Jivas for his. And I'm saying his for a very important reason. Um, you'll see in a bit. So this is called Apartak Siddhi. And this is kind of like the main thing that Ramanuja has proved. So he's shown that God is that being with a lot of auspicious qualities, at least six, if not many more, Gambiriya, etc. And among his various qualities, there are two very important for us, which are Jiva and Jagat, which are always changing, contracting and expanding, contracting, expanding for the Jiva according to their deeds. Okay, now here's the objection. So is God changeful like the world? right? The world is changing. We just said, how can God be the world? Now the answer is this. No, God is amalatvam, as I said earlier. He's, he's pure. Why is he pure? Because the body can change without the soul changing. Think of how the body has changed from babyhood to young adulthood to um, adolescence. Sorry, <laughs> I got it out of order. Babyhood to adolescence to young adulthood to uh, mature adulthood to old age. The body is changing, right? You still feel like it's your body, but you still feel like the same person. Like someone once saw her face reflected and she thought, oh, how did that happen? I still feel like the same 20-year-old girl. She was 74 at the time, I think. Like, can you imagine? Like sometimes you're surprised by your age sometimes. You feel the same. You as a soul, as, as an anu, as an individual, feel yourself to be the same one throughout the various changes of the body. So now Ramanuja will say, why can't that be also true for God and his relation to the world? The world is God's body. God is the being whose body is the whole world, whose like fingernails are you, you know, like you are little 
atomized parts of God. So you can change, contracting and expanding. The world can change, contracting and expanding. But those changes don't necessarily constitute changes in God per se. Any more than the body changing means a change in your soul. Now, that's a very important point, right? <laughs> I'm trying, Gear. You know, the thing is, I need to land the ship, right? But a lot of times, I don't see any landing strips. So, <laughs> and and today is a special day, so I'm being indulgent. I hope you won't. Whether you mind or not, what can I do? I'm just gonna, I just, I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so, um, but I am conscious of the time, and I'm coming to the end now. We're almost at the problems already. One other thing, right, Guru Purnima. One other thing I have to say is about problem of evil. So we talked about a dualist having to deal with the fact that the world is changeful and full of evil. So how does God, you know, fit into this? Now, the answer is karma. As you'll typically hear from dualists that God's not responsible for the evil in the world because God just sets the world in motion. And importantly, um, people doing what they do is the reason why evil accrues. So by doing bad deeds, you have to endure suffering. That's the karmic law. That's the nature of the universe. God doesn't permit it any more than God creates it because that's just part and parcel of God's being. So notice here, God doesn't create the world. Fire doesn't create heat. Heat is just a property of fire. And so the world with its karma and its laws are just property of God. Okay, next. God doesn't desire to create a world. The world and the jivas just appear as part of his svabhava. So they contract and they expand just as a part of his being you see he doesn't he doesn't like um desire and stand as a creator to its creation it's just part of what happens within the innate nature of god so we deal with the desire thing it's part of god's sportive pleasure to be the world right now this is most important how do we solve the paratwa and the saulabhya the transcendence of god and the imminence of god friends already we found a profound solution you know if this world is nothing but the body of god then you have seen nothing but God all your life. You've never seen anything that was not God. What a beautiful idea that everything you touch is God's body. Everyone you see is part of God. So notice the transcendent that seemed so lofty and so far away is now in a sense imminent because everything you look at is part and parcel of that. Yeah, exactly. The fractal version of, but not really because the part doesn't contain the whole. So it couldn't be a fractal. It couldn't be like a holograph. That's true of Kashmir Shaivism. It's not true of this. So the part can't contain the, contain the whole. That's the thing. So each thing is still a part, but it's still a part of God. It's like if I saw Julie's finger, I would say I saw Julie, but it's not, the finger is not Julie. Julie is more than the finger. Similarly, the world doesn't exhaust God. God transcends the world. Um, so it's not pantheism, you see? It's not pantheism. Yeah. So, no, no, Julie is not the puppy. This is important. The puppy is its own. See, don't conflate. Don't conflate this with our non-dual stuff. Like the puppy is its own anu. It's its own, it has its own anutwa, its own atmatwa, it's its own being. And it is a discrete and unique part of God. And Julie as an anu is also a unique and discrete part of God. <laughs> no, actually, cu actually cuteness is eternal. Um, adorability, it's called. It's eternal. God is eternally cute, actually. It's not quite transient. <laughs> it's part of God's... Um, Gambiria, he's eternally or transitive. Yes, yes. Okay, so what do I have? Okay, Gita, verse 10, 42, it says, in one particle, I pervade the nature. Only one particle of God pervades the nature. So although God is imminent as the whole world, the world doesn't exhaust God as in pantheism. Rather, the world exists as in a panentheistic sort of relation. Okay, 
And this maybe we'll close with is his idea of the lame man and the elephant. So to resolve Paratwa and Saulabhya, and in many ways to resolve the problem of evil, he shows that while God is way beyond the universe and far grander, God actually condescends to his bhaktas to help them the way an elephant might kneel down to allow a lame man to climb onto its neck. So the lame man might not be able to reach the elephant if it's so tall, but the elephant bows and bows and bows until even the lamest of the lame can climb onto its back. So God is like that elephant far beyond us. And yet, and this is a beautiful and unique contribution of the bhakti school, God comes down to our level somehow in order that we might be taken up to hers. How does God do this? And this idea to me is stunning and it's a good idea to close on. So I don't think I'll tell you the 12 problems of Ramanuja. We'll do that next week. In fact, it can be homework. For the next week, I'd like you to dwell upon this school of philosophy, compare it to what you've heard in this space thus far and see what matches up, what doesn't. See if it resonates with you. Try to see the world in this way. See the world as a body of God. See each individual as a part, not God entirely, but as a part of God. And imagine that beyond these people, beyond this world, there is a vast, immeasurable expanse of transcendent bliss. And that is God. Okay, and now this idea I'll close with. It's very deep, very beautiful. How does the elephant kneel? In three ways. First, um, in the avatara, this is called vibhava. So God, and this is very important for bhakti schools because they love Rama and Krishna. What are Rama and Krishna? They're avatars. They're God descended into human form. So there's vibhava, which is one way the elephant kneels. So God, he's not permissive of the problem of evil because anytime it gets to a head, he, he himself comes down as a person and tries to set things right. And anytime it goes or I, he comes back again and tries to set things right. So therefore it shows that God isn't just like, like nihilistically, masochistically, sadistically enjoying evil. Like we might sometimes hear in, in, in Shaktism, in very, very radical forms of Shaktism, it's all play, right? But no, the play has a purpose. The play is actually most fun when people are saints. So notice a lot of uh, what I was drawing from in that lecture was from this. This idea of like God creating saints, a more moderate form of Shaktism. Okay, anyway. So now God proves her benevolence. Sorry, his benevolence. Old habits die hard. This is Vishnu we're talking about. Uh, God proves his benevolence because he uh, comes into the world as a Jesus Christ, as a Buddha, as a Rama, as a Krishna, as, as a Ramakrishna. And he comes to set things right and show people the way. So the avatara is one way in which God steps down. So this is the best spiritual practice to meditate on avatars, to practice what their what their teachings point. Do avatara dharma, practice what the avatara taught, right? Meditate on the avatara. And if you're so fortunate, you can meet the avatara. That's the wonderful thing. People were there. They were Jesus' friend and mother and, you know, people could, but they do go away after a while, right? So even Ramakrishna had to go away and the next avatara might come and the next avatara might go away. So the elephant has to come down a little more. So the next thing after Vibhava, I'll put that in the chat maybe, Vibhava, which is the avatar doctrine. The next one is called Archa, which is the doctrine of image worship. So now the idea is that God comes as an avatar, but not only that, God also comes in an image. So Hindus are very fond of worshiping images. And a lot of people think, oh, it's idol worship or fetishism, but not quite. The image is not seen as inherently holy, actually. It has to be made holy typically through prana pratishta, installing into the image that deity and projecting into the image the deity, or as I prefer, removing the illusion that the deity was anything but divine to begin with. That's a very non-dual way of seeing it. For that thing to become auspicious, something must happen to it to make it, I mean, otherwise, everything could, would be a deity, right? And it's true for, for serious non-dualist, everything is. But there's something special about an avatar. 
Sri Ramakrishna once said, every part of the cow is a cow. So too is every part of the world God. But you know, you can only get milk from the udder. So although every part of the cow is a cow, you won't get anything from sucking its horn. You have to suck its udder. Similarly, although this entire world is God, the avatara is the udder of God. And if even once you come into contact with it, you can drink the life-giving milk of God through that avatara. The avatara is like a door. But if the avatara is not there, then what? Then actually there's what is called the archa. So this image of Sri Ramakrishna is not Sri Ramakrishna. Accept that it is. Because according to Ramanuja, God doesn't only come as an avatara, but God also enters into his images. Whatever image you want, God comes into that image so you can worship God in that image. You see, isn't that beautiful? So there's this archa idea. So it's not just avatara, it's also archa. So notice the elephant has come down even lower and then the elephant comes down even lower. Because you could say, look, you need to have good karma to even learn how to do tantric puja or any puja. You need to learn and you need to kind of have images and go to temples. And Gare was saying, like, in some cases, it's not possible. You can't go to the temple sometimes. You might live in a culture that's antagonistic to that, as Gare was describing. So you might not get the chance to go to the temple. Or even if you can, you might not be learned. You might not know about God or anything. So there's one final thing that Ramanuja offers, and it's for anyone, anywhere, irrespective of caste or status. So even if you don't have any Brahmanical knowledge, you can still practice this. And this is called prapatti. Prapatti means simple-hearted surrender to God. And the reason why it works is because of Lakshmi. So remember, Sri Ramanuja school is called Sri Vaishnavism. It's the name of the school, Sri Vaishnavism. Vaishnavism. It's essentially a Vedanta plus Vaishnava Bhakti synthesis. Um, and obviously founded by Sri Ramanuja. It's very intellectual, very lofty. But notice it's called Sri. Why is it called Sri? Because it refers to the goddess. Now, who is the goddess? Not what you think, okay? So Shakta is in the room. Hold, uh, restrain yourselves for a moment. It's not the radical uh, concept that we as Kaula Tantrikas have of Shakti. She's not like the creative power of the universe. No, only Vishnu is the creative power of the universe. However, she's often seen, it's not actually clear what she is. He doesn't even mention her really too much in his Sri Bhashya because I think he feels like that would be too out there for his Vedantic work. But he talks about her a lot in his Gita commentary and other places. Who is she? According to Sri Ramanuja, she's the first person. I mean, in one sense. She's inseparable from him, right? She's always close to him. But she's also, though inseparable, manifested as the first person. She's the first jiva, you know? But she's always with him. So she's like, he also has like, he's got Garuda and, you know, he's got, he's got a bunch of people who are eternally with him, like partial, his partial manifestations, if you will. But Lakshmi, his consort is like the queen of them all. And she's the first Jiva and she has a mother's heart. So the idea is what she does, her role in Sri Vaishnavism is that she intercedes on the behalf of the unworthy. So the idea here is that Vishnu is like father, all about justice. You have to you have to do your work and do your karmas and purify yourself so you can expand your dharma, bhuta, jnana until you get to the level of the shuddha, um, you know, you have to have a shuddha body, shuddha sattva body, like all that stuff. Vishnu, you know, you have to do it right. However, Lakshmi with mother's heart says, even the, the wretch of wretch, wretches with no learning whatsoever, she has a soft, soft spot for them. So just through selfless, surrender, total self-abnegation and surrender to God, you can instantly, like, snake snakes and arrows, you can take the, the, the arrow or the ladder straight up to the final square. You don't have to do any of the works or any of the practices prescribed by Ramayuja, like sadhana bhakti or para bhakti or prema bhakti. You skip all of that with what is called prapati, intense, instant devotion to the Lord. 
And that's because mother intercedes on your behalf. So that's the role of Shakti or Shri in Vaishnavism, a much lesser role than what she gets in Shaktism, where she's the one soul power and Shiva's just like inert on the floor, like Shiva who, right? That's that's our vibe as Shaktas. But here it's like, no, she's there. And she's the mother of the world playing this inter- role as interceder on our behalf. So I'm just going to leave all of that with you. Close the lecture here. It's already been two hours. Thank you so much for your patience for this double feature today on Charvaka, on um, dualistic theism and some of its problems, as well as um, Ramanuja, a brief life and also a, a, a overview of his teaching. So your homework is this. Sit with these ideas. Maybe re- review this video if you'd like and, and see, is this tenable for you? Like, will you now feel like moving around in the world knowing this, that everyone is a part of God, that you yourself are a part of God? God is the antaryamin, the indweller in all. And yet God is still beyond this world. Um, is it helpful to think of mother in this way as the first jiva who intercedes on our behalf? How does this change your relationship to image worship or to avatars like Rama, Krishna, Jesus, Ramakrishna, etc.? So think about all this stuff and think about some philosophical problems with this school, right? And then, yeah, true. But here the question is, is everyone God in totality, like a fractal, or is everyone God in part, like in Ramanuja? Are you all parts of a whole? So basically what I'm asking you to do is some comparative philosophy. Compare what you heard today with what you heard in previous lectures. Compare it with your idea of uh, uh, Kevala Advaita, of Shankara, of Kaula Trika Tantra. You see, what I want to do is I don't want to just like preach at you every week now, you know, like Kaula Tantra, Kaula Tantra, Kaula that's That's my school. That's my home base. But I'd like to now expose you to a vaster array of Indian philosophies so we can do this kind of comparative work. There's something for everybody, you see. And so I hope that you've enjoyed your time here at the feast. Happy Guru Purnima to you one and all. And remember always it's the person and not the message that matters. And I pray today that we may all surrender at the feet of the Guru, remembering always that the Guru is that line of unbroken power transmitted throughout the lineage, that the Guru is that power by which one awakens to the ultimate reality. May we remember that there is but one God and that is that ultimate reality, the power of that reality to which all these Aspirants have awakened by the grace of the Guru. Om Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, Guru Reva Param Brahma, Tasme Shri Guru Venamaha, Akanda Mandalakaram Vyaptyam Yena Characharam, Tadpadam Dashitam Yena, Tasme Shri Guru Venamaha, Dhyana Mulam Gurur Murtim, Mantra Mulam Gurur Vakyam, Mokshamulam gurur krepam, mokshamulam gurur krepam. I bow at the feet of the most adorable guru, who is consciousness, bliss, absolute, manifest, who is Shiva, Brahma, Vishnu, and all. Salutations to the guru, who reveals unto us the indivisible nature of the self. We bow at the feet of such a promulgator, of such a revelator. Salutations to the guru, The root of meditation is the form of the Guru. The root of mantra is the word of the Guru. And the root of liberation is the grace of the Guru. May all of this be an offering to my Guru. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Sri Ramakrishna Rapanam Astu